We're up to our long-distance dedication. And this one is about kids and pets and a situation that we can all understand, whether we have kids or pets or neither. It's from a man in Cincinnati, Ohio, and here's what he writes. Dear Casey, this may seem to be a strange dedication request, but I'm quite sincere, and it'll mean a lot if you play it. Recently, there was a death in our family. He was a little dog named Snuggles, but he was most certainly a part of... Let's come start again. From coming out of the record. Play the record, okay? Please. <clears throat> See, when you come out of those up-tempo goddamn numbers, man, it's impossible to make those transitions. And then you got to go into somebody dying. You know, they do this to me all the time. I don't know what the hell they do it for, but goddamn it, if we can't come out of a slow record, I don't understand it. Is Don on the phone? Okay, I want a goddamn concerted effort to come out of a record that isn't a fucking up-tempo record every time I do a goddamn death dedication. Now, make it, and I also want to know what happened to the pictures I was supposed to see this week. This is a god, last goddamn time. I want somebody to use his fucking brain to not come out of a goddamn record that is, uh, that, that's up-tempo, and I got to talk about a fucking dog dying. <laughs> Casey Kasem, everybody, the late Casey Kasem, also the voice of Shaggy on Scooby-Doo, who uh, did uh, Casey's Top 40 for a very long time, and that was one of the outtakes that made the rounds on the internet. In fact, it was making the rounds before the internet as you know it. I remember when I had a college radio show in 91, I played that outtake. We, we had a copy of it somewhere. Anyway, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Hopefully I won't have a meltdown like that tonight. This is the Druff and Friend show on Poker Fraud Alert. I am Todd Dandruff Wittellis. I've been your host of this show since it started in March of 2012. And I'm here pretty much every week, occasionally not. We missed having Calwatt here by a few minutes. Last week, I talked a lot about bathroom issues, and I hate to admit this, but the reason we don't have Calwatt on tonight is because of, again, bathroom issues. <laughs> no, it's not funny. Don't laugh. It's Here's what happened. It's, it's not going to be a long story. I just... I was just about to hit the start button for radio, and I noticed I had to use the bathroom, and I wasn't going to go five hours feeling that way. So <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, the show's already late, and Calwatt uh, presumably went to sleep, because he was kind of like a maybe for tonight. But I thought, okay, well, he probably went to sleep, and we're late, and it's understandable. It's going to be around midnight there, so I didn't feel like the five minutes I was going to take in the bathroom to make the difference. Well, those five minutes made the difference. While I was on the toilet... He texted, checked, but still no radio, gonna pass out. And then I responded, no, wait, 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 we're about to start. I just had to go to the bathroom, but he must have passed out. I put in a standing offer if he wakes up to go to the bathroom himself that he can join in at any time, but I wouldn't hold my breath. But at least he's showing interest in returning. And had I started on time tonight, he would have been here, which kind of annoys me. Not, I'm not annoyed at him. I'm annoyed at myself. I'm annoyed at my... Uh, my bowels for this one. But okay, enough toilet talk. We had enough of that last week. If you want to hear more toilet talk, listen to last week's show. That's the end of the toilet talk for this week. I'm going to try to find Trey Ruski, who hopefully also has not passed out because I went to the bathroom. But in the meantime, I want to tell you about a free roll we have. A free roll, just like we have every week, on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. That you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. And we are giving away... 
more money than you think this week. You probably think, if you followed the thread, you probably think we're giving away $87.18, which, which is a decent free roll. But we're not giving away $87.18. No, we are going to be giving away $187.18. Yeah. This is called the Eric Benzamokin Splash Pot. He's decided to splash the pot of our free roll, much like Phil Galfon's site splashes the pot every so often. Except unlike Galfon, I'm not going to claim it's rakeback. This is not rakeback. This is just money out of Eric Benzamokin's uh, Jew lawyer wallet. But uh, very generous of him to give $100 at the last minute here. And so we are updating the free roll. And by the way, you can get in right now. The free roll is just starting now at 9.15. You have 25 more minutes to get in there. And if you get in there within the 25-minute time frame before it shuts you out, then you can start with a full stack and maybe win some of this $187. Now, of course, now I have to redo the prize pool on the fly, another form of producing the show during the show. So let's see. Before the first place was 40, what I will do is I'm going to put uh, – you know, I'm just gonna, I think I'm just going to – let's see here. I guess I'll just do it proportionately. So since we got $100 extra, no, it wasn't exactly proportionate. This is tough. Math is hard. Okay, we're just going to make it $90 for first. Let's just do that. $90 for first. I was thinking of 100 but I said screw $100. we will do 90 for first. We will do 50 for second. Let's see. That leaves, uh, what, 47.18 left? Let's get rid of the 18 cents here. And make it uh, $30.18 for third. And uh, $17 for fourth. There we go. 90 $50, $30.18, and 17 are the prizes. I'm not going to pay a fifth because I think we're not going to have that big of a field tonight. But thank you to Eric Benzamokin and thank you to the other donors. We had three other donors this week. Jack Daniels. Yes, that's Jack Daniels from Scats. He's actually donated. Jack Daniels gave $50, an anonymous donation of $20, and Belly Buster, $17.18. That's where that 18 cents came from. That was a remainder of another donation he gave. So thank you to all of you. And good free roll tonight. Almost 200 bucks. Almost 200 bucks. And I just want to update the site right there so people understand. There we go. You got uh, 25 minutes to get in. I updated actually PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll. I actually did that last night. I said, you know, I haven't touched this in like a year. I'm going to go update it. So I updated PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll, which are the freeroll rules, which you need to read and understand if you want to be able to qualify for the freeroll money. And if you win, I can pay you by Zelle. By Cash App, by bank transfer, certain banks only, Bitcoin, or even other methods like a payment method that has been used for almost 20 years on the internet to pay for things you might buy. I can send it to you that way as well. So you can PM me Dan Space Druff on the forum to collect your money. You can text me 775-372-8355 to collect your money. Or dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com is my email address. You can email that if you want to collect the money. So, 
giving the other uh, little intro details. The phone number, as always, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number to the show. You can call the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone sits on top of Mount Charleston, about 45 minutes from Las Vegas by car. Forwards to me wherever I go. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. We have various call-to-listen lines, which you can just call up and listen to the show. It's not a way to reach me, but you can listen to the live show. You can also listen to the streaming archives, where it just picks reruns from the past of our library of more than 300 shows and just runs them in full and then runs another one, another one, another one until we come back on the air. The call-to-listen line is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736 is the call-to-listen line. There's an alternate number also, 641-741-1095. 641-741-1095. These are tough numbers to remember. I, I agree. It's very tough to remember these numbers. These are not easy numbers. So if you want to... See them all. Just go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com, and they are all listed right there. You can chat in the chat room during the live show. If it's during the archives, you're not going to find anyone there. You can talk to yourself there. You can go and talk to yourself while you want, chat with yourself. But you will not find anyone else there unless you're listening live. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads. And this is the one thing I'm glad about that CalWatt's not here, because if he were here right now, he would be giving me a hard time about that and reminding me that flash support is going to completely end on browsers very soon. At that point, I'm going to have to find a new solution. I'll be forced into a new solution. Let's see what else we got here in the intro. Uh, got to find Trader Ruski somewhere, by the way. You can text me. That's right. 775-372-8355, the same as the show's main phone number. 775-372-8355 is the text number. And I think that's all we have to do on the intro before I give the topics of the show. I'm trying to speed through this. I'm trying to go faster. So there's more show and less intro. I don't have many people saying, hey, can you make the intro longer or keep the intro long? Like everybody says, make the intro shorter. And I have a problem with the intro. What's happening, Druff? Hi, Trader Risky. And I, you know, I have a problem with the intro. I have a problem with keeping it short. I just I have an obsession with the intro. We, we have to do something about that. If, well, I just, we, uh, we have, first of all, everybody who's listening knows how to listen because they're listening. So let's just send them somewhere. If I understand if they listen to the podcast or this live show, we can send them to a link. Okay, well, I'm going to quickly say in the archives we have uh, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Bullhorn. All those methods can be used to listen to the show, and an MP3 can directly be downloaded or played through PokerFraudAlert.com in the radio forum. There we go. I just sped through that as well. That was good. That was good. And uh, I don't know how I would handle it if I had a half-an-hour show. I, I think it would be like all intro and like two minutes of content. Thankfully, I'm not under such restrictions here. I can make it as long or as short as I want. So let me know if there's any sound problems tonight. I, I, In the haste to get this show up, I did forget to hook my hardwired connection in. I'm actually doing this through Wi-Fi, which is usually fine. In fact, that's how I do it when I'm on the road. But uh, one time we did it on Wi-Fi, I went back and listened, and I heard there's kind of like some choppiness. So if you hear any choppiness or any poor sound quality, let me know, and I can uh, plug it in. And I, I had to pause the show to do it is the only problem, but... Uh, so I don't want to do that, but if there's any sound issues, let me know in the chat room. So, 
Uh, here's the agenda tonight, and then we'll get going. A poker fraud alert exclusive. This is something that nobody has talked about, and you won't find discussed anywhere on the web except for on Poker Fraud Alert and maybe a little bit on 2 Plus 2 because I was dumb enough to post it over there too. But it was, it was me who posted it, though. I made a discovery that a former female Vegas poker pro has passed away at the age of 32. But it's a lot more complicated than that. This is a very weird and interesting story. And even though you probably have not heard of this woman who passed away, the story behind her is quite interesting, and you'll be able to Google along if you want and see all the pictures and read all the sub-stories that surround it. So this is going to be our top story. The mysterious death of Vegas poker pro Erica Trink. That's not really the sound effect I intended upon, but kind of works. That's, that's our top story. And then sticking along the same lines, as I said, well, if we're going to talk about one dysfunctional Vegas female poker pro who met a bad end. Let's talk about another. So it was brought to my attention, coincidentally, nothing having to do with Erica Trink's death, but uh, it was brought to my attention through the forum that another 2000s female Vegas poker pro has ended up in an unfortunate situation. Now, this person's not dead, but they're uh, not in very a very good spot right now. Stephanie Sadora, also known as Jenny Lee. Why is she known under two names? Well, because Jenny Lee is her porn name. Yes, she was a, a porn star and poker player in the 2000s. And I think she's ranked like 119th in the most popular porn stars ever. I don't know how that's determined, but that uh, that's what was found. Anyway, she was a poker pro for a short time. was also a, a porn star. And she's now only 36 years old. She's not that old. But uh, she was found, and kind of surprisingly found, during another story being done, living in the infamous Vegas tunnels under the city. So I'll play you some clips of Stephanie Sedora talking about why she was in the tunnels and how she feels about that. And we'll discuss how that happened. By the way, she doesn't look very good anymore to say the least. And I don't mean just because she's 36 compared to when she was in her 20s in porn. I mean, she doesn't look like the same person. Uh, by the way, we're, even though Erica Trank, who is uh, no longer with us, we obviously couldn't interview her on this show, but we're going to have her on the show nonetheless. She's going to speak on this show tonight. Seriously, I'm not joking here. We're gonna, you're going to hear her voice tonight. She's going to explain some things on the show from the grave. Quan Zhao... I hadn't really heard of before, but he was a player at the EPT Barcelona main event and was at a televised table. And he pulled a really, really nasty angle, which, in fact, was kind of beyond just an angle. It was kind of downright cheating. So we will discuss Quan Zhao's very, very nasty angle at the EPT Barcelona. And you can even watch a video of it. Phil Helmuth is back involved in controversy again because, once again, Phil thinks the rules just don't apply to him. Phil took some of Mike Matisau's money off the table at Live at the Bike while Mike was still sitting there, which, as you poker players know, is a big no-no. It's known as going south. You're not allowed to remove money from the poker table until you actually quit and stand up and leave. 
and that is to prevent something called rat holing, where people win money at the poker table and then put it away so it's not at risk anymore. Basically, the very simple rule of poker is that any money that you brought to the table stays on the table any, until you lose it, and any money you win at the table stays on the table until you lose it, unless you leave. You cannot take your winnings off the table until you're done. Phil took some of Mike's winnings off the table, and people were not happy about that, and Phil doesn't seem to see a problem with that, despite the fact that he's been part of poker for more than 30 years. So we will talk about that. Another rapper has gotten in trouble in Las Vegas. It seems like this is a common occurrence these days. Fetty Wap, I think that's how you say his name, F-E-T-T-Y-F-W-A-P, was arrested for punching a Mirage employee three times. So we'll talk a bit about that situation and why these rappers keep getting into these uh, altercations at these casinos. Speaking of an altercation, the Caesars regional director in Atlantic City has been fired after he was sued by another employee who saw him making out with an underling during work hours. Wow. So he actually got fired. This is the, the story has not really been uh, discussed very much. I'm not the first one to bring it out, but it's, it's really been under-discussed, and we're going to correct that on this show. Not more Caesars news. Tom Reage, you're going to hear about his name plenty in the future. He's going to be the CEO of the new combined Eldorado Caesars. Remember, Eldorado Resorts bought Caesars, but the sale has not been made final yet. There was a, there's a delay on it on purpose. So once the actual merger occurs, once it's final, then the new CEO of Caesars and Eldorado, the com- new combined company, will be Tom Reage, who's the current CEO of Eldorado. Well, he was hit with a subpoena regarding insider trading. So we'll discuss that and if this could possibly affect whether or not he will remain CEO of Eldorado and soon-to-be Caesars. A law firm has been sued. You heard that right. A law firm is not suing. They're actually being sued by a Houston poker club that was raided. The Houston Poker Club claims that the law firm misled them about the need for their services regarding getting legalized and based the entire thing upon an ordinance that was non-existent. Very interesting story. We'll discuss that. And finally, speaking of not telling the truth, if you want to legally sports bet in Washington, D.C., this is going to be on hold. It was well on its way. It was about to become reality until... Something was found involving a subcontractor that basically was going to be doing all the work. The subcontractor that was hired to do all the work at the D.C. sports sports betting operation, this is the legalized D.C. sports betting operation, the only one that's going to exist, Uh, the subcontractor does not exist. (laughs) They they hired a, a fake company to do the work. I will explain what happened there and why corruption is involved and why this may put a long delay in legalized D.C. sports betting. That is our agenda tonight. Free roll. You still have 10 minutes to get into this epic free roll of almost $200 thanks to the $100 Benzamokin splash pot that changes from $87 to $187. So $90 up top. Pretty good for what's probably a small field free roll. By the way, we are going to be trying to be on Thursday night as much as possible. That's going to be our new regular night. Uh, 
So it, it may change here and there, but that's what we're going to be shooting for. Uh, look for the show to begin usually between 8.30 and 9 p.m., typically Pacific time. And that's what we're going to be trying to make happen regularly. Maybe I, I can even make it a little earlier if it'll get Calwatt back. Maybe, maybe I can even do that. Okay, so let's get started here. I think the intro wasn't that terrible this time. For sure it was less than half an hour, I know that. I want to talk about our lead story, and that is about the mysterious death of former Vegas poker pro Erica Trink. And if you're by a computer, or at least if you have a smartphone as you're listening to this show, I'd like to suggest that you kind of follow along and Google some of these people I talk about, because it's kind of relevant to the story. Erica Trink, and I'll spell her name for you, it's Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A, and Trink, T-R-E-N-C-K. Erica Trink, T-R-E-N-C-K. She was a poker pro in the uh, late 2000s and early 2010s. She lived in Vegas. She never became well-known. She never hit a big score. She did play cash. There was actually someone who posted in the thread on Poker Fraud Alert that he had played cash with her. So she... She did uh, at least play professionally for some time. I don't know how successful she was. She wasn't wildly successful. She didn't, she didn't make big money. I don't know if she ended up uh, a winning player or not, but that's not really important here. I first encountered her in 2009. I was at a World Series of Poker event, and I sit down, and there is a big pair of breasts staring me in the face. And I don't just mean a girl with big breasts who was across the table from me. I mean the breasts were out as much as they could be out, kind of almost like on a platter, to where uh, it, they're screaming like, notice me. And it was on purpose. It was as She was wearing something as low-cut as it possibly could be and still be legal in the card room. And she looked like she was in her early 20s. She was directly across from me. I had never seen her before. Uh, otherwise, you know, she was decent looking. She wasn't like super hot, but she wasn't like just one of these ugly girls who happens to have big breasts. You know, she was decent looking. And, and But the, the most noticeable thing about her was that was the breasts that were just, they were big and they were out as much as they could be out. And it was, it was a conscious decision on her part, for sure. <laughs> so I sit down and go, well, I've never, I've never had this before. Like I've, I've played with girls with big breasts at the table. I've played with girls who are trying to wear revealing outfits probably to distract the guys or use their sexuality to get an advantage. And that's fine. If they want to do that, that's fine. I don't hold it against them. You use whatever advantage you can. So uh, I had never seen someone take the cleavage thing quite to this extreme. Now, you can see a good example of it, though not even as much as I saw, but a, a good example of it if you either Google her or if you go to the Poker Fraud Alert thread about her called uh, Former Vegas Poker Pro Erica Trank, Dead at Age thir- at 32, take a look at that thread. You'll see a, th- a picture of her right near the top of it, or you can just Google the name Erica Trank, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So that, that, that's what I saw. That was my initial impression of her. So I thought, okay, well, I see what she's trying to do here, but how does she play? Well... She actually played pretty well. A little bit over-aggressive. Kind of seemed like someone who believed that they have to be aggressive in order to win, but like overly so. I've seen this in, in younger women before. Maybe because they feel they have to do it because they're, they're female and they're not going to get respect for their bets. So 
They've got to really ramp up the aggression. I'm not sure. I don't know exactly what their mindset is because I'm not a young female and never have been. But uh, that's what I noticed. But overall, I, I thought she was a decent player and definitely one of the more dangerous people at the table because she was willing to just put in her chips in light at times. And often you didn't know whether she had it or didn't. Those players can be uh, a pain in the ass to face. I did notice that she was a little bit arrogant. She was arrogant not regarding her looks, but about her poker play, where there was some recreational player that called her down light when she put in a big bet, and he called her down light and and won the hand because she was bluffing. And she started muttering, not even that softly, like not super loud where the guy could for sure hear it, and he was across the table, but but loud enough to where at least uh, a few people could hear it, and maybe even the guy across the table. She said something like, oh, I, should try, I shouldn't be trying to bluff these people, these, these donkeys like that that, that just uh, don't know how to fold. And then she went on to talk about how, and keep in mind, remember the way she was dressed. She went on to mention that the problem is that women just don't get any respect at the poker table. <laughs> and that nobody takes women seriously at the poker table. Now, while this is sometimes true, th- this is sometimes true, when you show up at the table with a super low-cut shirt on purpose to put your breasts out as far as you can to get attention that way, of course people aren't going to take you seriously. That- I thought that's what you're going for there, was was my thought. But I didn't say anything. I just said, I'm not going to pick on her about this. I'm not going to start an argument. I-, I-, I'm just, you know, I just let her rant there, and nobody really responded to her. <laughs> she kind of just... Uh, I, I could tell she was kind of aggressive in both uh, poker play and personality. A little bit later, after the event, Brian Mikon, who I was friends with at the time, this is 2009, remember, 10 years ago. Brian Mikon told me that, uh, he said, hey, you know that pair of breasts you were playing with at the table? That's actually how he referred to her, that pair of breasts you were playing with at the table. And I said, yeah, he says, that's Michael DeMichele's ex-girlfriend. I said, oh, really? I didn't know that. Now, and by this point... Uh, I wasn't in the event anymore. I think she busted before I did. but uh, So I, neither of us were in the event by this point, but I said, oh, I did not know that. You may wonder, who is Michael D. McKelly? Who is Michael D. McKelly? Michael D. McKelly was a young, clean-cut poker pro who burst upon the scene in 2006 and started doing quite well in tournaments. And then in 2008, really had a big year. The highlight of his poker career was finishing second at the 50K horse. So he almost won a bracelet in the 50K horse. He still took home like 1.2 million. So he still did very well there. So he was. That was in 2008? Yes. The second. Oh my God. I can't believe how long ago that was. (laughs) You feel really old now. But Dave McKelly was was really blowing up huge. And then for those of you that remember him, like Trader Ruski. You may think, well, why haven't I heard about him recently? How come 10 years have passed and we haven't heard of him? Well, that's because 2008 was the last year he did anything of note in poker. And it seems like that after 2009, he played in 2009, but after 2009, he seemed to have just vanished from poker completely, which we'll get to shortly. Uh, He returned in 2011, had a few small caches, and then seemed to be gone for good from the poker scene. Whether he went broke, whether he left with money, I, I don't know. I don't know. I never will know, probably. But he is out of poker, and after 2009, was mostly out of poker. And we'll get to why shortly. 
But let's get back to Erica Trank, who was his girlfriend for about two years. When I met Erica Trank, she was not with him anymore. She was with some other poker guy. I don't even know the guy's name, but she, she dated two guys in poker. One was Michael D. McKelly, and one was someone who's lesser known. But how did she get with Michael D. McKelly in the first place? And who was she? How did she end up in poker? She was quite young at the time I saw her. She was only uh, 22 when I played with her in 2009. So where did she come from? How was she in the World Series of Poker? How was she the girlfriend of uh, Michael D. McKelly? Did she know him from back home or something? No. How did she get to know Michael D. McKelly and become his girlfriend? Well, she did something pretty smart. She moved to Las Vegas with her mom. I don't know why, but you know, her mom moved to Vegas and she came with her. So she's living with her mom and kind of has no direction, isn't a poker player, kind of just a 20-year-old girl in Vegas without much knowledge of what to do with her life and just moved to the city, doesn't really know anyone, doesn't have a boyfriend, kind of just living with her mom, wondering what to do. She sees Michael D. McKelly on TV. And she notices a few things about him. First of all, she thinks he's good-looking. Which, if you look at the pictures of him from back then, he was. He was a good-looking young guy. I don't know what he looks like today, but uh, he was kind of like a good-looking, clean-cut young guy. But she said he also seemed like he was nice. That He didn't seem like a degenerate. He didn't seem like an asshole. He didn't seem like he was an arrogant jerk. He, just, he actually seemed like uh, a decent guy in what little she saw of him on TV. Now, that can be deceiving sometimes, but that was the, that was the impression she got of him, whereas uh, every other poker player she saw on TV, she thought either wasn't physically attractive or the ones that were just seemed like jerks. So this was a guy she thought, hey, you know, I'd, I'd love to go out with this guy. But, you know, think about the poker boom in 2007 when, when she saw him on TV. We're, we're, we're near the height of the poker boom. The poker players on TV are almost like celebrities uh, could a 20-year-old girl in Vegas who lives with her mom, who isn't a poker player, uh, just just some ordinary 20-year-old who's, who's you know, decent-looking but not, like, model hot by any means, does she have any chance with, with a poker pro on TV who uh, who's good-looking, too? Well, she thought about it, and the answer was yes. Why? The, the 2000s was a very interesting time in Las Vegas. The poker community of the 2000s, but especially the Vegas poker community of the 2000s, was a very interesting mix of people. And it was a very interesting and weird time in many ways. And if you were part of it, you probably know what I'm talking about. The young guys who blew up in poker were not necessarily the guys who got all the girls in high school or even college or were uh, the social butterflies or were the... uh, they weren't the ones who were used to being popular, necessarily. Some of them were, but but some of them were not. Some of them were the nerds you remember back in high school who continued to have very little or no experience with women. And even though they succeeded in poker, often largely because they were smart and their the nerdiness you noticed in high school translated to the ability to become a great poker player, but they were still the same high school nerds who had no experience with girls, even when they were on TV playing poker. Now, I don't know if Erica Trank noticed that or thought of that, but uh, she decided to take her shot. She's thinking, hey, if the guy's on TV, that doesn't mean that 
he's got all the girls all over him yet. But what if he's single? What if he doesn't have much experience with women? What if what if he's he'll be happy to meet me? So she messaged him. She went onto MySpace. Yes, MySpace was relevant then. She looked him up, Michael D. McKelly, and sent him a message. And it worked out. Exactly what she was hoping would happen did happen. Now, rather than tell you the rest of the story, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let Erica tell you the rest of the story. And I think she can tell it way better than I can even though I've already summarized some of it for you. And then you will understand more about how this all came to be and what it was like when she was dating this uh, up-and-coming and and soon-to-be-blowing-up huge. He hadn't had his huge 2008 yet. This is back in 07. Uh, Poker Pro. So I went out one night, like, uh, close to the time of when I first moved here, which was um, December of 06, when I first moved to Vegas. And uh, my mom, actually, and my mom never drinks. And, I mean, I always drank. (laughs) But we both got really (laughs) drunk, and we're walking around the MGM Grand Parking Garage trying to find our car. And I see it, except it's two levels below. And I'm thinking, okay, I can just climb down these walls because the escalator's far as fuck away. So I try climbing, I fall, I shatter my ankle, I'm in bed for months. Like, I I end up leaving my apartment to go stay at my mom's house, um, stay in her spare bedroom, because she literally had to, like, pack a lunch for me every day downstairs and bring it up. I could not walk downstairs for weeks and weeks at a time. And this Um, is in Chicago or this is in Vegas? This is in Vegas. This was right around the time, like, maybe six months after I moved here. And I started randomly just watching, like, a repeat of a recent poker tournament. And um, there was a guy on there who I think he ended up getting third in that tournament. And I don't know. I just thought he was really cute. He seemed like a sweetheart. And most of the time, that's not poker players. (laughs) They're not that cute. They're not that (laughs) sweet. They're just uh, greedy and selfish. Um, But... Uh, so I, this was when like MySpace was still even in use and I found him on MySpace and I just sent him a message or whatever. And the world series of poker, which is in the summer, uh, over at the Rio was about to come. And I still had like my walking boot on my ankle and he wanted to meet me. I'm like, Oh, so you want to meet me like in my crippled state? He's like, well, can you walk? I'm like, yeah, but I look ridiculous. He didn't care. And um, a week later, we were living together. Wow. Well, a week later, they're living together. (laughs) So she's like messaging them on MySpace. And uh, she's like, yeah, I think you're cute. Uh, Let's talk, whatever. And then they go back and forth. And he's like, well, let's meet up. Let's meet up. And she's like, oh, no, no. I don't think you want to see me like this. You know, I've got a boot on my foot. It's like very unsexy. I'd I'd rather meet you in a better condition. No, 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 no. Let's meet. (laughs) He he wanted to jump on that. He was was jumping all over that. I, I don't know if she sent him pictures of her breasts out like that or if she developed that gimmick later. But uh, whatever it was, he was very hot to meet her and didn't care there was a boot on her foot. Though, to be honest, if I was in that spot, I would have done the same thing. I wouldn't have cared if the girl had a boot on her foot if I liked her. You know, I, I know it's not going to be there forever. So they met, and within a week, they're living together. And that was not uncommon in Vegas in those days. 
Like that type of thing would happen. What was more uncommon than I thought it should have been was the fact that this type of thing happened. Like I would have thought that a lot more girls would have jumped on the situation like she did. There were a lot of guys who had a lot of money who in many cases were young and fairly good looking, not even talking about like the ugliest guys in poker that may have money. But I'm talking about young guys who were were decent looking guys like Michael D. McKelly, who just did not have much experience with women. And all any girl basically had to do was just contact them in some way. And they would have been like all over it. I was surprised there was not more of this. This might remind you a bit of the Amanda Leatherman story involving Dutch Boyd. Because Amanda Leatherman is much more scandalous. Uh, here it sounded like Erica really wanted to date him, like not just have sex with him. Uh, Amanda Leatherman, who was with her boyfriend at the time, according to Dutch Boyd, live, with her live-in boyfriend, and had just moved to Vegas, messaged Dutch and sent pictures of herself. And Dutch is, and the, the, you know, she starts really heavily flirting with him. And Dutch is like, well, you know, I've, I've always kind of had this fantasy of a girl coming into my back door and we just have sex and she just like doesn't say anything and then just leaves and she's like okay i'm coming and then she did exactly that while she's living with her boyfriend so that was a lot more scandalous than what erica did here erica didn't do anything scandalous but i was just surprised there were not more young girls like trying to jump on the poker boom and get to be part of it by the fact that they were simply young females and a lot of young guys were gonna like that and these girls didn't even have to, like, settle for, like, older, unattractive guys. They, there were plenty of guys in their 20s who were around their age who they, they could message like this, just like she did. Like, Michael D. McKelly was only a little bit older than she was. He was probably, like, two years older or so. So, yeah, within a week they were living together. I'm sure she was happy. That was a big upgrade from living with mom. I, I don't know if D. McKelly was making sandwiches for her every day. <laughs> I don't know if that was happening. But, yeah, they, they jumped right into that. So they stayed together about two years, and uh, I don't know why they broke up. I had not thought of her since, well, I hadn't thought of her much. I've thought of her occasionally since I played with her 10 years ago, and the only reason I would think of her would be when I would read or hear about some girl complaining about guys not taking them seriously at the poker table. And my first thought would be Erica Trink. I'd think about, well, are these girls who are just being mistreated by men at the table because some men are just jerks and don't respect women at the table, which is true. There are plenty of men like that in poker. Or was it a case of someone like Erica Trank who, who shows up to the table with their breasts hanging out and they're like, why won't you take me seriously? I'm a serious poker player. So I, I, whenever I'd read that, I'd, like, I'd try to figure out which one it is because it was some of both in poker. When you, when you hear about women being not treated with respect or taken seriously in poker... Sometimes it's because the women bring it on themselves, and sometimes it's because the men are just jerks, and sometimes a combination of both. It's, it's actually all of these things. So I, was one, I, I would think of her occasionally, because definitely the way she was dressing there it wasn't meant to command respect. So you've got, you've got to go one way or the other. If you, if you want to be the girl with the big breasts out at the table distracting everyone and, and being like the sex object at the table and then distracting the guys and, and having them not see that you're actually a good poker player and going to take their money, great. If, if that works for you, then leave your breasts out on the platter all you want. I have no problem with that. But at the same time, you can't say you're not being taken seriously. Or you could, you could dress normally, and then you won't have quite the same advantage from the standpoint of using your sexuality to get attention. But at the same time, then you have more of a complaint if guys don't take you seriously just because you're female. 
It's got to be one of the two, though. It can't be both. So that, those are the only times I would think of her, and it'd be very brief. I had not thought of her enough to try to look her up in the past 10 years. I had never tried to look her up since we played 10 years ago. So like when, when, I, when I heard she was Michael D. McKelly's ex, I looked her up at the time, back in 2009. And then since then, I, I had not thought of her enough to look her up. Uh, a radio listener texted me a few days ago saying, hey, you know who I haven't heard of in a long time but used to be, like, blowing up huge? Michael D. McKelly. What happened to him? Wasn't he on your radio show back in the day? And I said, oh, yeah, he was. He was on the Never Win Poker show that I did with Mike on. I think we had him on in 08. And he was a nice guy in my interactions with him. And I, I thought good things about him, but I hadn't thought of him in a long time either. And I thought, hey, you know what? That's one of those guys you used to hear about a lot, and then it's just been gone like the last decade. What the hell's going on? So I Googled Michael D. McKelly. I, that's when I found that he had no results in 09 or 10 and then had a few small caches in 11 and then nothing since then. And then I was scrolling down some other results hoping maybe to find why Michael D. McKelly quit. And then I saw something about him and his girlfriend, Erica Trank, at the same table. And I go, oh, Erica Trank, yeah. Well, I wonder if she's still playing. So I Googled Erica Trank. And as you know from the intro to this show already, I found that Erica Trank had passed away. She was 32 at the time of her death on February 24th, 2019. So it was actually a a fairly recent event. Didn't just happen yesterday, but it was this year. Well, when somebody dies at age 32, you, of course, wonder what the cause is. It's not like someone's 80 years old dying. Someone 32 should not be dying unless uh, something unusual occurs. So, of course, my first thought goes to, I wonder if it was a drug overdose. That's a very common cause of death for younger people, especially poker players. We've had a lot of uh, poker players we've lost due to the abuse of drugs. But I could not find a cause of death. I found a memorial page for her. And on the memorial page... I came upon the most shocking revelation of this entire story. That at the time of her death, Erica Trank was married. And that her husband died five days after her death. Now that is weird. Her husband was 47, so he was older than her. But... Not an old man. So how does a 32-year-old woman die and then her husband dies five days later and in all my searching I could not find any cause of death including in the comments that people made on these memorial pages. Yeah, people talked about how tragic it was, etc., etc. Nobody talked about or even implied a cause of death for either one. Then I started really wondering what the hell happened? How could this have occurred? And this isn't like old people when one 85-year-old dies and then the husband or wife dies a short time afterwards because they're, uh, the shock and depression of the spouse's death basically robs them of the will to live and uh, things start to fail and they die. So once you're that age, everything's very fragile and even something emotional that really sets you back can lead to your death. 
So that's uh, that's a known thing that happens a lot with married couple with long time married couples where one dies and the other follows very shortly. But but not at this age, not with a thirty two year old and forty seven year old. You uh, you're not going to just depress yourself to death, no matter how sad you are about uh, your spouse's death, unless you actually go take your own life. So I'm thinking, well, hmm, that's really strange. I even tried to look to see if there's any kind of police reports or anything about the situation. What, what if it was a murder-suicide? Couldn't find anything about that, so it appears it was not. Also, the obituary and the memorial page for Erica seem to speak at least somewhat glowingly of the husband which they would not have written if he killed her. So I threw that theory out the window. Trader Ruski, upon hearing that part of the story, uh, what would be your first impression of how the two of them would have died within five days of one another? I don't know. Maybe bold in the house or something like that. I mean, it just seems so strange. There's, was the husband young as well? He or? was 47. Oh, 47. Yeah. That's not old. I'm maybe something like that with water or something in the house. I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 so I was having a very hard time with this one, and I said, this is very intriguing, especially because I, I played with this person. And uh, her husband was not a poker pro, by the way. She, uh, she married someone who's not into poker. In fact, she left poker after, uh, after marrying her husband. It's not clear why. Uh, he was involved in the Vegas cannabis industry. I don't know what he did before that, but that's what he seemed to be doing at the time of his death. So uh, when I say the time, I mean the, the, around the time of his death. Not He wasn't doing it while he died, to my knowledge. But anyway, very big mystery on my hand, and I, I kind of wanted to figure it out. I also kind of wanted to figure out what really happened to Michael DiMichele. Where did he go? So a lot of things to figure out here. So I started looking. Well, Erica Trank has a Twitter that's still open. She may be gone, but her Twitter still lives. You can take a look at, at Erica Trank's Twitter. It's Queenie's Back 666. Q U E E N I E S, Queenie's Back, B A C K 666. At Queenie's Back 666. You can take a look at her Twitter, and you will start to notice something when you do that. Uh, first of all, you'll see that she tweeted pretty much all the way up till her death. She died on February 24th. She had tweets late at night on February 23rd. The tweets on February 23rd did not seem to be indicating any kind of health problem, nor were any other tweets that were any time near there. So what killed her on the 24th, and then what killed her husband five days later on March 1st? Well, if you go take a look at her Twitter, you'll see a lot of very crass sexual references she was not shy about uh, talking very openly about sex even to the point of being like awkward to read like this was actually the second to last tweet she wrote before uh, she died she, she wrote this at uh, 9.52 p.m. on February 23rd it's a, now here's a spoiler and a spoiler a warning a warning to everybody listening to this. If you're listening in mixed company, uh, turn it off or put on headphones. If you have kids in the car, turn it off. Make sure nobody is around 
who you may not want to hear a dirty tweet. Okay? That's my warning. Okay? So I'm going to give you a second to turn this off or turn it down or put on headphones. Then I'm going to read it. You ready? Okay. I think we're ready. My husband might not fuck me often, but when he does, he absolutely destroys my pussy. That was her second to last tweet. Imagine that being your second to last tweet. You got to watch what you tweet because like, you never know which tweets are going to be your last. That's, that's not what you'd want to be remembered by probably. But she, she really tweeted this. My husband might not fuck me often, but when he does, he absolutely destroys my pussy. Hmm. Weird thing to write. Maybe he fucked her to death. That's what, that's what someone said when I posted it on the forum. They're like, well, now we know the cause of death. And so, his heart gave out five days later. <laughs> I, think we've, I think we've got our answer. I'm glad I have you on the show. Wow. All this time. It was right in front of my face. So I, I saw that. Oh, just like the breasts were. It comes full circle. Yes. So I, I, I saw that. I scrolled down. I saw another one. Uh, from February 22nd. Uh, let's see here. I've lost it here. Let me see if I can find it. No, I lost it. It, it was something about... See, I, I can't find this one right now. It's kind of... Actually, let's see if I click here. Maybe I can see more easily. I really want to read this one to you guys, too. For some reason, I had it up, and now when I search for it on Twitter, it's not showing anymore. Uh, I see. She tweeted so much on February 23rd that it was like taking up the whole screen. I see. Wow, she tweets a lot. She really tweets a lot. Wow, she 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 wrote like a million tweets on February 23rd. My God. I mean, like, it looked like 100 tweets that day or something. Maybe she died of uh, over-tweeting. Anyway, uh, some of it's retweets of other people, but still. She, she was pretty much living on Twitter. And and her obituary even mentioned her twi- her Twitter that that she was outspoken on Twitter. Here we go. Again, don't have mixed company around for this one. The biggest decision I'm going to have to make today is which dildo I want to ride first. <laughs> That's what she tweeted February twenty second, two days before her death. She also tweeted, I don't know if she's serious about this, also on February 22nd, in, respo- in response to someone asking to see pictures of her or something, some, some like dirty pictures of her. She wrote, ha, not on Twitter anymore. All the naughtiness is on my premium Snapchat. So I don't know if, is there such a thing as premium Snapchat? I should look that, I never knew if there's such a thing, but let me look up if, there's, if there is premium Snapchat. She could have been joking, but may- maybe she was. No, there is premium Snapchat. See, I just learned that now. Premium Snapchat actually is what a lot of girls use to sell nudes. There's actually a Google result saying Premium Snapchat Guide, Tips for Selling Snapchat Nudes. So maybe she was selling nudes on Snapchat. I, I could, didn't see any other references to that on there. Maybe she was joking, but she knew Premium Snapchat existed. and <laughs> She kind of seemed serious in her response. But th- this is what that guide says, by the way. little tangent here. Is, is it really possible to make over $10,000 per month selling access to a premium Snapchat account full of your nudes and other explicit content? It sure is if you know exactly what you're doing. Well, I'm interested. I, I, I think I would sell nudes of myself if I could make 10 k or more. 
I've been training webcam models to kick butt with premium Snapchat sales for years now, and I've decided to reveal exactly how the top models make the big bucks on the popular sexting platform. If you want those fat stacks for yourself, you, bet, you best read this article to the end because it just may expand your weed budget to unheard of levels. Ah, uh, clever. Oh, and if this info is, this info is only for those over 18. Uh, let's see, scroll down here. Nah, I'm not going to read this whole thing. Anyway. Uh, I don't know if she really had a premium Snapchat account, Snapchat account, but she made reference to that there on the 22nd of February. Now, keep in mind she was married, and keep in mind that she tweeted, like, constantly. Just so many tweets, one after the other, many of them being very dirty, though. The one about the husband absolutely destroying her, that, that was kind of unlike her, even for her. That one was kind of really over the top. But I think I figured out why. And unfortunately, it ties into her death. But not, not the way you think, not the way Trader Ruski thinks. So um, before I get into that, I'm going to play you one more clip of her. And this was from an interview back in 2017. That's where these clips are coming from. Uh, I'm going to play you a clip of her talking about her presence on social media and her general attitude toward uh, people and life. Let me get to that here. So, so yeah. let's, let's talk about what, 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 so one of the reasons why my brother's calling us, one of uh, the reasons uh, why I wanted to have you on is one, not because of your background with, with your, your job for what you do, but, but also because of your attitude, you know, I mean, you're kind of a fuck you type of person. I'm a huge fuck you type of person. Like I'm really loyal to the few people that deserve my loyalty Right. And other than that, it's just like, all right, you don't like me, fuck you. I don't like you either. I don't care what people think. I don't care what people say. I just don't care. I mean, you, the only thing, you should care about the people that care about you. And other than that, I don't have time to give a shit about anyone else's opinion, really. <laughs> well, I mean, and you get, I mean, I'm sure that you get, I'm sure that your inbox, I'll be honest with you, yeah. I'm shocked that you were able to reply to me through your, through a message system. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll scan my inbox and stuff and I'll honestly, about 75% of the messages are unopened. Right. So I'll just scan and see like, you know who I want to reply or even read the first line. And I can tell just before you even open the, the message, what the first line is. And if it's your typical, like, Hey, sexy, send me some pics. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my God, come on, go look at my fucking media. I mean, I'm yeah. not shy about it there. Don't tell me to send you some pics. Right. <laughs> I never found those pics, by the way, I didn't really look, but I'd feel kind of morbid at this point doing it given that she's dead, but uh, I, I guess I guess there were pics on premium Snapchat. I guess she was serious about that. So where, so, I mean, let, let's get to this. I mean, you, you've got 25, roughly 25,000 followers on Twitter. How did you get to that point? I mean, is it through poker? No, not at all. So um, is- I, uh, I originally started out a couple of years ago when hashtagging had just kind of become big. Um, I was one of the 
the bigger hashtaggers now they're everywhere and I don't even know half of them but um I was one of kind of the original ones of a group of of uh, you know a dozen others that really tried to get it going and then I kind of just lost my interest on that and then just started posting like just the random rambling on messages and talking shit messages and sarcastic messages that you see now and the following just kind of grew. So when you get and we, we had a conversation about this briefly last night. I mean, when you get to a point where you've, you're starting to get, you know, multiple thousands of followers, how many people do you, I mean, how many do you follow? Actually, I can probably just look that up. I think I follow a little less than 5,000. Okay. And I've got like a little more than 23,000 followers. Yes, you follow 4,700. So here, so now I want to stop for a second. If you look at her current Twitter account, that's not true. She has about 500 that she's following and 2,500 followers. So I think with her name being Queenie's Back 666, I think that's probably a newer account. And it's the one she's talking about here in late 2017 was her original account. I don't know why she left and came back. Here's a question. Yep. So uh, do you scroll – I mean do you do you pay attention to who you follow? Do you read through Twitter on a daily basis and have those responses from the people that, that, that you follow? Um, I If I see new followers, I, I will like – you know, in chunks, just at least skim their profiles. Some of them I'll follow back. Some of them I won't. Some of them it's just a hunch, and some of them it's just like it's pretty obvious. You can like read their profile and right. be like, "I don't want to follow this motherfucker," <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. And there's, um, I'm, I'm not the. I'll, I'll admit, I'm not the most generous follow backer. Sometimes right. I think that I only have like a hundred and sixty people that I'm following that are not following me back. Right. Um. And those are like, you know, certain celebrities and stuff like that. But I do check out every person and, um, you know, a a lot of the, a lot of the people that, that kind of have posts similar to mine, I will follow. All right. I've heard enough of that stuff, but you you get the idea. You kind of get the idea of what, what type of person she is and what her attitude sort of is. And she was married at the time of this interview, which was about two years ago, about a year and a half before her death. Uh, it was a reference made to how she was probably inundated with tons of messages because of all the skin she was showing and all the sexual references she was making all over Twitter and how she would just skim the titles of the message and not open most of them because they seemed to be just desperate dudes. But that, that seemed to be what she was doing. I, I can't seem to find any evidence that she was really holding a job after poker. She did say later in the interview that once she was married, that she stopped playing poker. She didn't exactly say why that was, but she did. So I think this is kind of what she did with herself, that she was just like a social media person, that her whole thing was being brash and sexual on Twitter. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think that she had some kind of like open relationship with her husband or anything like that, and I don't know when they got married. But uh, I guess this was just kind of her thing on Twitter, and then she probably just left it on Twitter. That's my guess. There were a number of drug references on her Twitter when I scrolled through it, so I think that uh, was probably going on. I don't know which drugs, but uh, I have a feeling that had 
something to do with the death, which I'll get to shortly. In fact, I'll get to it right now. So what ended up killing her and then what killed her husband five days later? Well, I have to say here, I'm only guessing at this. I do not have any information on this. So I may be completely wrong. These are all just theories and guesses on my part. I want to put that disclaimer out there. But I went back to the tweet about my husband may not fuck me often, but when he does, he absolutely destroys my pussy. I'm thinking that's kind of an awkward thing to write. Like that, that's not sexy at all. That's not. That's just crass, even for someone who's used to tweeting that type of stuff. It's, it's kind of just embarrassing to read, to be honest. It's like someone who's trying too hard to prove to everybody that their marriage is good. And I thought there's something odd about that tweet and the fact that it occurred just before she died. I don't think it's a coincidence because I went through a number of other tweets and they weren't quite like that. They weren't like awkward and embarrassing like that. The, the rest of them were just kind of uh, snarky and sarcastic and sexual, but, but not like that. I thought there's something weird about that tweet. and The fact that it occurred right before she died, I think there's something to it. So I, I looked at some other tweets around that time. And then I found what I think was probably, or at least in my guess, my guess was probably the answer. And unfortunately, it's not pretty of what I think happened. So here's my theory. She tweeted about an hour before that pussy tweet the following. Or not an hour, it's actually about... Uh, 15 minutes before. Whatever. Hey, skanks. There are literally billions of fish in the sea. You think you can keep your hands off somebody else's husband? It's really not that hard, you fucking home-wrecking whores. Well, this is February 23rd at uh, 9.40 p.m. Well, that is a little bit... uh, more interesting the night before she dies she addresses skanks telling them that they have to stop going after other people's husbands and called them home wrecking whores she actually took the attitude that is more old school regarding women who sleep with uh, other women's husbands A long time ago, it was kind of assumed that uh, it was more the the other woman's fault than it was the husband's fault, that the other woman should just not do it, that if a husband cheats, it was probably because a woman went after him and had no respect for the marriage. Many times the women who were cheated on are angrier at the women who their husband cheated with than at the husband, which shouldn't have been. That should not be the way you see it. the value you have is with your husband, not with the person, not with the stranger they're cheating with. Now, if it's a, a best friend or something, that's a different story. But I'm talking about just, just some random girl you've never met before. If your husband cheats on you with, with that girl, uh, even if they know that he was married, uh, your real issue should be with your husband, not the girl who did that. Maybe a very little bit of the girl who did that if she knew, but if she didn't know you, and she had sex with your husband, that's really on your husband, not really on her. He's the one you have the vow with. He's the one you have the bond with. He's the one who made the promise to you he's not going to do that. And if he does, then it is his fault, not the girl's fault. Even if the girl pursued him somewhat. It's, it's, uh, 
the, the only way it's her fault is if she's actually trying to directly undermine the marriage. If she's trying to approach him and criticize you or things like that to convince him to get away from you, uh, th- then you can blame her somewhat. Still blame him, but uh, then she's somewhat to blame too. If, if it's just some random girl that, that, that he's banging behind your back, even if he knows that, uh, even if the girl knows that he was married, if that's all she knows about the whole thing, then I wouldn't really refer to them as home-wrecking whores. I would blame the husband. But that seemed to be the position she was taking on February 23rd and actually tweeted this out in public to make her dissatisfaction known. Clearly, this was not just in theory. This wasn't just her coming up with this like, hey, you know who I hate? I I hate women who try to steal other women's husbands. You know, I, I'm going to speak out about that on Twitter, even though it has nothing to do with me. No, this must have been happening to her. She must have discovered either that night or sometime close to that night of the 23rd of February that her husband was cheating on her. Someone responded back, in my experience, women don't even give a damn if a man is married. Some seem to see it as a challenge and, and, and put the she will never know card. Uh, women always find out. And then Erica responded with what ended up being her last tweet of her life. Oh yeah, I know they don't give a shit. People in general are shit. They only care about their own damn selves. And that was one minute after that uh, my husband destroys my pussy tweet. So let, let's all put it together here. Let's put this all together. 9.40 p.m. she tweets to skanks who are home-wrecking whores that, that, she, that they should keep their hands off of other people's husbands. 12 minutes later at 9.52 she says, hey, I may not have sex with my husband very much, but when we do, he absolutely destroys my pussy. It's great. And then, and then one, sec- one minute later, responding to someone else saying that people are, in general are shit, they only care about themselves. Let's put it all together here. She and her husband probably were not having very much sex anymore. I don't know whose fault it was, maybe both people's faults, but somehow sex just wasn't happening much in that marriage. Then she finds out that her husband was cheating on her. She is understandably very upset about that. Then, 12 minutes later, she tries to rationalize to herself that uh, the marriage was otherwise fine. She probably had some doubt for those 12 minutes. Well, maybe he did it because I don't have sex with him much anymore. Oh, my God, this is my fault. Oh, I screwed up. Oh, I can't believe I caused my husband to do this. You know, it's, you know we don't have sex. Oh, I let the marriage uh, go to crap. And then she got herself together and said, no, 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 no. We don't do it much. But when we do, oh, it's great. He absolutely destroys me. It's great. And then a minute later, somebody responded to her, and she refers to how people just don't care about anyone but themselves. They're all shit. So clearly she was in a marriage that was having some trouble, probably trouble sexually where it's just not happening much, which is kind of funny for a girl who talks about sex all the time on Twitter, and find out he was cheating. And my guess is that since I did see drug references on her Twitter as well, that she self-medicated, that she took a lot of drugs that night because she was so worked up and unhappy and depressed about finding out that her husband was cheating on her. And I think she overdosed. That's my guess. She overdosed as a result of the depression brought on by finding out her husband was cheating on her. I don't have that fact. I don't have it verified, but that's what I think. That's what I've deduced here. But what about the husband? How did he die five five days later? Well, Imagine that you love your wife, but you're kind of having some sexual problems. You haven't been having sex much. 
and but you still love her. You have no desire to leave her. You, you really care about her a lot. But since you haven't been having sex much, you just think, oh, you know, I have this opportunity here to have sex with someone else. Uh, okay, let's just do it. And then she finds out. And then she confronts you about it. And you admit it. She's very upset. And the next morning you wake up and she's dead of an overdose. How do you feel at that point? Probably very, very, very guilty. And I have a feeling that the guilt overwhelmed him. That his cheating caused her to overdose and die. And that five days later, he either overdosed himself or intentionally killed himself. That is my theory. No cause of death listed for him. No cause of death listed for her. They're both mentioned in each other's obituaries. To me, that's what this looks like. He cheated. She overdosed in response. And he then either killed himself or overdosed out of the incredible guilt. So, kind of a tragic story if that's what happened. And... It's always weird to me to see tweet, tweets of people who are now dead and see what their last tweets were and how, aside from people like uh, Kevin Rax, who had a planned death because they had terminal cancer, where they know their last tweet is their last tweet. Usually when I see people's last tweets, they don't know it's going to be their last tweet. In many cases, they probably believe their death is quite far away. On the night of February 23rd, I doubt that Erica Trank thought that she was going to be dead the next day. And I doubt that her husband at that point thought he was going to be dead in less than a week. But sometimes life throws you a curve and then everything falls apart from there. So that's... uh, I found this especially fascinating because there were these final clues on Twitter about what happened. And it could be a coincidence. Maybe, maybe she just uh, died for uh, some other reason the next day, but nothing was mentioned in her obituary about natural causes. I guess it's also possible she killed herself, but I just I kind of don't really see that in her personality. I see an overdose as more likely. In fact, I think if she was going to kill herself, given her love of social media, she was actually going to say something to hint at it or something before doing it. I don't think that's what she meant to do. So anyway, it's, it's a sad story. And when people die young, it's always sad, unless they're bad people, which she didn't appear to be, nor did her husband. But... uh it just shows what can happen sometimes. And sometimes there can be a chain reaction, which, uh, you know, I bet when her husband cheated on her, he had no idea that this would result in both of them being dead very soon after. So that's uh, that's the story of Erica Trank. And uh, you can feel free to look this up and come up with your own theories on this. 
Now, I'm sure I'll have some people that uh, will criticize me for trying to analyze this and guess at this and for bringing this out here after she's dead. Some people may say it's disrespectful towards the dead. But I think somebody who was always so open about themselves and out there and, in fact, uh, made an identity out of being so blunt and open and out there on social media, I think she would not mind that I was doing this segment. I never knew her well, but just from what I heard of her in that interview and what I saw of her on Twitter, she, she doesn't seem like the type who would want privacy about this situation. So I don't even feel like I'm doing something that if she could be alive to see, she'd be very upset about. So anyway, rest in peace, Erica Trink, and rest in peace, uh, Darren Crane, that's uh, her her husband, K-R-E-I-N, if you want to look him up, Darren Crane, K-R-E-I-N, both passed away earlier this year. Little footnote here, Michael D. McKelly, to my knowledge, is still alive, but uh, something weird happened with him in 2009, where he showed up to the series, and he changed his look from a clean-cut young guy, even a little bit on the nerdy side, to showing up to the series with fingerless gloves, a weird scarf around his neck, and a really odd hairstyle that looked like he just got out of bed. He almost looked like a different person a year later. He took a lot of heat on social media at the time, or what existed of social media in 09. He took a lot of heat on forums and everywhere else for his new look. And people said he looked like a douche and and what the hell's wrong with him. And he he really took a lot of heat over his new look. And it didn't help that he was bricking every tournament. He didn't cash in a single event in 09. And... Erica actually had shown up on 2 Plus 2 to defend him at one point. She only has two, pl- two posts ever on 2 Plus 2. Her name is uh, Sin City Vixen there. And uh, she showed up there to defend Michael D. McKelly when people had accused him of cheating. Now, I think the cheating accusations were bogus. From what I could see, they didn't look credible. It's one of these things like, uh, oh, you know, he's he's playing at uh, at Foxwoods and he's always three betting and his friends are at the table and they're three betting too and they're colluding. It seemed to be someone who didn't understand limit poker and the way limit poker works. Or if you have a fish there, you're trying to isolate the fish and there's a lot of three betting going on there. And so it, it can appear to someone who's not watching closely or doesn't understand limit poker that it's collusion, but it's not. I once dealt with one of those accusations myself and I was not cheating in any way. So I, I don't think he was cheating. Uh, she even went on to explain this is how Limit works. They made a pretty good post about it. Uh, but in this post, uh, she actually addressed She said, I can't explain the fingerless gloves or the crazy hairstyle he sported at this year's World Series. Maybe he's just at another point in his life. That's irrelevant. I only talk to Mike every once in a while at this point, but the last text message I received from him said, and I quote, I may never touch another deck of cards again. Apparently, Mike has lost his passion for poker and has decided to pursue other interests. So this is, she wrote this in September of '09. This is after he bricked the World Series and took a lot of heat on forums and social media about his new look. So I think between losing at poker and having everyone going from liking him to making fun of him, he probably just wanted out of the poker community. Then probably two years later, came, tried to hand to return, got a few min caches, and said, "Yeah, you know, screw this. I'm I'm not gonna. I don't think I'm gonna get back my." 
previous success, so F it, I'm going to go do something else. And that's what appears to have happened. So I don't know what he's doing today. I asked the Hanson kid about him. because I found in 2013 he was actually on some podcast the Hanson kid did, talking about Bart Hanson. But uh, Bart Hansen responded back, I think you're the only person in the world who still cares about him at this point. <laughs> so I, I guess he doesn't know. So that's Michael DeMichele. All I know is he's gone. Uh, Saw 24 in the chat room is referring to me as uh, Detective Druff which they've referred to before on the forums when I try to figure out things like this. So, I don't know. Maybe I should make this my new theme to the show. Detective Druff. Figuring out why poker players die. And why their husbands die. Why their friends die. Inspector Druff. Okay. Well, since since we've since we're on the topic here, let's let's move on. Let's let's talk about another girl who was formerly kind of a poker pro and has hit on hard times. But you'll be glad to know this is not going to be a depressing death story because this person's still alive. They're they're still alive and. Uh, I wouldn't say well, but they it's kind of by choice. I'm talking about a sort of poker pro named Stephanie Sadora, who tried her hand at poker in the 2000s, as, as many people did. But she was also known as Jenny Lee. That's J-E-N-N-I-L-E-E. Now, the, the funny thing is, and I, I only realized this today, we we had another Jenny Lee in poker whose name really was Jenny Lee, and that was Jennifer Lee Genocide. That was spelled differently. It was uh, you know she went, she went by Jennifer, not Jenny, but Jennifer L E I G H Jennifer Lee. So this is Jenny Lee, totally different person, very different story than Genocide. Jenny Lee decided to be a combination of a poker pro and a porn star in the two thousands. Her name originally was Stephanie Sadora. That's that's spelled uh, S-A-D-O-R-R-A. Stephanie Sadora. And in the mid to late 2000s, she was in her early 20s. She was currently 36. So probably born in 83. Um, a Dutch company was doing yet another story on the Vegas tunnels. And I, I have to explain what the Vegas tunnels are before we get into this story. It's very weird. You've probably heard of this before. There are storm drain tunnels under Vegas that are really just there because uh, the water's got to go somewhere and they don't want to flooding the city. So the, the city uses storm drains and there's actually little tunnels there. Except since Vegas is a desert, it doesn't rain there very often. So provided that people get out of the tunnels when it rains, when it can be flooded and kill them. Uh, the tunnels are used by homeless people as a place to live because it's protected from the elements and uh, it's, it's out of the public. They don't have to worry about as many things as, as up at the service. They don't get harassed by the police down there. So a lot of homeless started living in the tunnels. 
the tunnels have a number of problems. Uh, first of all, as I mentioned, they're dangerous. If a flash flood comes or if an unexpected storm comes, then uh, water can rush in and, and kill you. Second, and this is odd to say, combined with the first thing I just said, there's no water down there. There is water you can that, that's, that's on the floor, but there's no usable water. There's no clean water. So that's, it, you've probably had the experience where you live where there's been a problem and the water has to be shut off, either if your landlord shuts it off in your apartment building or if, if uh, the water company comes to your house and says, hey, we have to shut off your water today because there's a problem with the water main outside, whatever. Like I, I just had this a few, day, a few weeks ago and it sucked. So imagine just never having water where you live. You just no water. You have to bring your own water down. It sounds awful. So there's no clean water that you can access down there unless you just bring some of yourself down in bottles. Uh, more water problem. There's water on the ground constantly. You're kind of constantly walking in a dirty puddle, which which couldn't be very pleasant. Also dangerous you can, for, for electrocution reasons. Uh, the, the way they stop their stuff from getting wet is they, they have uh, – people who live down there have their stuff on either like old crates or, or old furniture they bring down there. So the, the tunnels definitely have uh, a lot of downsides. Also, the police are not down there. Any crime that occurs, you know, no, no one's going to see it except for the other people living down there. And you're also living in a tunnel, which is very depressing. You're not seeing any daylight. There's no windows. However, some people like the tunnels – because a community kind of forms down there and they kind of try to protect each other and everybody's kind of there for the same reason. They just want to try to live in peace, not be hassled. Most of the people down there are there because of some kind of drug issue that led to them being homeless. And there's been a number of stories about these tunnels over the years where people go down there, people meaning journalists will go down there and interview people in the tunnels and show the conditions in the tunnels and they it looks pretty bad to me. Like if if I was homeless I would not live in the tunnels. I I would take my chances on the street. If if forced to be one of the two. Like truthfully if I was homeless I'd I'd do everything I could to not be homeless. But 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 putting that aside, if if uh, I had to be homeless, I would much rather live on the street than in the tunnels. For many reasons. I wouldn't want to constantly be standing in a puddle of dirty water. I would want to have access to water. I, to clean water, that is. I wouldn't want to be living in a tunnel with no windows and just isolated away from everything like that. Uh, it, it, the, the whole thing just seems like dirty and depressing to me, even for being homeless. So those are the Vegas tunnels. And they've been talked about a number of years. And the tunnel people have been talked about a number of years. So uh, especially in Europe, they seem fascinated by it. It seems like most of the documentaries I find online are European in nature. So this one was a Dutch documentary. And a guy just came down to do a documentary and interview people. And then he ran into a woman named Stephanie. By the way, uh, Trader Risky, can you hear this? Or were you able to hear it? I was. Okay, good. Hi. Hi, my name is Ewald. What's your name? Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Nice to meet you. Uh. So, so, so this is where you live? This is where I live. Okay. Mm-hmm. How old are you? I am 36. 36, okay. And, and what's it like to, to be here as a woman? Um... Not as difficult as you might think. 
Um, everybody's really respectful. Um, people down here are, are good to each other. Yeah. Which I don't, I don't think you find much. Okay. What was your job before you ended here? <laughs> I used to be in pornography. As an actress. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and were you successful as a porn actress? Oh yeah, too a little too successful maybe. Let me stop right here. She does not look like someone who is a porn actress. And yeah, I know porn actresses get older, and often they, because of the hard lives they lead, they don't age particularly well. Uh, this, you'd never guess it from looking at this video. She looks older than 36. She has Her hair is, is about as unattractive as you can imagine. It's, uh, it's messy, it's greasy looking. Probably she doesn't get to shower much. It's up in a bun. A little bit, but it kind of just looks stringy. It's up in a bun. It looks it looks really bad. Uh, she's wrinkly. Her uh, her teeth look really bad, kind of like meth mouth. Uh, they're rotten. Uh, she just doesn't look like someone. She she looks like just you can't see completely through her clothes. She looks like overly skinny. She doesn't have much of a figure. This is a woman you have a hard time imagining even being sexy ten years ago. But but she was. That's, that's the funny thing. If you go back and see the old pictures of her, even pictures from like five years ago, six years ago, way different than this. But this is definitely her. It's been, it's been verified. But I'll, I'll go on playing this. I actually got very famous. Um, if I, I should still be top 100 on some, you know, some list somewhere. Really? <laughs> yeah. I used to be so hot. <laughs> 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 but uh, you know, I'm but I'm happy. You know, I I have everything I need here. What's what's the difference between under the ground and above the ground, where the strip is and all the casinos and the hotels? People are more accepting here. Under um, the ground. Yeah. Do you think you can ever get out of here? Um, you know, uh, uh, yes, but why? Do you like it here? <laughs> I kind of, I do, I do. You do um, like it? I do. Like, sure, there's no water, and... What do you um, like about it? Uh, I like that, um, those hardships build camaraderie. Uh, so I feel like you end up making, like, more genuine friends. But how can you be so positive in this situation? Um, I mean, it's easy. People are, are amazingly adaptive uh, creatures. And um, you, you're used, you get used to whatever it is you is put on your plate, you know, whether you like it or not. And how do you do it, get, get used to this situation? <laughs> time, you know, a little bit of time. That's like, it. Just like everything else. Okay, so uh, first of all, she comes off pretty well as, as far as the way she speaks. She she doesn't speak like someone who is like a crazy homeless person. She she speaks like a, a normal woman. She doesn't look normal, but uh, she speaks like she's normal. Uh, the, the guy was surprised at how positive she was about the whole thing, and she says, "Oh, the people here, we we there's camaraderie. We're all here uh, together. We." Uh, we're here for the same reason. Uh, I understand that, but 
I think she really had she really was just lying to herself to justify why this is okay. Why why you don't want to just kill yourself once you're down there. Like that's I think she's trying to find the positive in it. And I guess, I guess that's fine. But it's also not fine for a reason I'll get to a little bit later in the segment. If you want to see this video, it's on the Poker Fraud Alert thread called uh, Ex-Porn Star Poker Player Jenny Lee Found Living in Vegas Tunnels. That's in the Flying Stupidity portion of the forum here. Just uh, By the way, the, the Erica Trank thread is also in the Flying Stupidity portion of the forum. So you can find that there. You can also just look at the video on YouTube. Just look up Jenny Lee, a.k.a. Stephanie S. Homeless, and you'll find it. But uh, you also might want to see the before pictures of her, which were not shown on this video. And you can do so by, on Facebook, you can either click the link, that the Facebook link that's in that same thread, or you can go to facebook.com slash Lee. All one word. My, M-Y, Jenny, J-E-N-N-I, Lee, L-E-E. My Jenny Lee. You'll see a bunch of pictures of her, including some that were posted in uh, 2018. And you look at the 2018 pictures and go, wow, you know, she didn't look bad in 2018. She didn't quite look the same as when she was younger, but she still looks decent. How did she go from that in 2018 to this in 2019? Well, it turns out those are older pictures. It turns out those are from 2013 which was really the last real big batch of pictures that she had taken. That was It, it kind of looks like 13, 14 was kind of the last time that she looked decent. And then it started to go downhill fast. Uh, but you'll see a lot of pictures of her from the 2010s there. You can also just Google her to find other pictures of her from when she was uh, younger and when she was in porn. Interestingly, she actually had her address up on... Facebook, which is not her address anymore, obviously, but it says uh, 167 Fallon Court, Las Vegas, Nevada. That's actually a single-family home in Vegas. So I'm surprised she put that down there that anyone could visit her at the time. Uh, she was trying to sell a lot of things, including uh, her underwear and uh, videos of herself or cam sessions. So she was trying to come up with anything to make money and, and admitted several times on her Facebook, if you scroll down, that she was in need of money. So and, and even like in small need of small amounts of money, so it's clear that she's been struggling. She still has a website, which is active. Uh, I don't know if she receives anything from it anymore. If you were to buy anything, but to, if you go to uh, JennyLeeOnline.com, J-E-N-N-I-L-E-E-Online.com, you can see her website, and you can see some pictures of her. You can see what she looked like at one point, and then you compare them to the girl that you see in that video, and it's hard to reconcile it's the same person. But it is. And what happened is the question. Well, it's not hard to guess that probably what happened was drugs. She She has the look of somebody who abused drugs very badly. And drugs can destroy a person's looks where someone who was once very attractive can become the opposite of that in a relatively short time. It looks like that's what happened. This story got bigger because the Daily Mail in the UK covered it. And that's how one of our forum members found it. 
this is on the Daily Mail, which is a big site in the UK, on August 20th, had an article entitled, I used to be so hot. Ex-porn star Jenny Lee, 37, is discovered living destitute in the tunnels under Las Vegas, but insists she's happier with the homeless because they are more accepting and genuine friends. So if you look at that article, you can scroll down, you can see some old pictures of her, what she used to look like. Now, her teeth never looked good. She was one of these people who just had crooked teeth and she never got fixed. But uh, that's why in just about all the old pictures of her, you'll see she always has her mouth closed. And uh, once in a while, she opened her mouth, you could see their teeth didn't look good, but it's different now. Now her teeth are like rotten, like someone who abused drugs and did a lot of meth. The teeth back in the day when she was attractive were just crooked, like she never got braces when she needed them. And that's why she just kept her mouth closed and that she was very attractive. So you can see by looking at her pictures why she was successful in the porn industry and why a lot of people liked her. But uh, you might wonder, was this video that the Dutch people did, was that current? Like how, It was somewhat recently, but how recent was it? And are there any further updates to Jenny Lee? And, and by the way, it, it was said somewhere that she claimed that she lost all her money playing poker, tr- attempting to be a professional poker player. I think that probably isn't true. I think what really happened is that it all went away because of drugs. But there's an update to this story. By the way, there's also a weird picture on her Facebook that says Brazzers.com on it, which is a porn site. But there's a picture of a guy sitting next to her on a laptop, and he's talking to her. And it looks very much like Alec Torelli. I don't know if it is him. It could be a lookalike. But it really looks like Alec Torelli. That'd be funny if Alec Torelli was having sex with her at one point. Uh, I wouldn't put it past him to that maybe he was... Supporting her at one point. Anyway, getting back to Jenny Lee, there's an update since that story that they did on the Dutch place did and the Daily Mail picked up on. MikeSouth.com, which I, I don't know exactly what MikeSouth.com is, but they had this update. This is five days later after the Daily Mail article. A person who is well-known within the industry, referring to the porn industry, has found and met with Jenny Lee. They met up with her last Wednesday for about an hour. This is what they had to say about the meeting. She is no longer in the tunnels, but living under a bridge, has a street boyfriend for companionship and safety, and unfortunately is on a regular mix of drugs. She's kind of upgraded, I guess, to living under a bridge instead of being uh, in the tunnels. And she has a street boyfriend. She was offered assistance in the form of relocation into a private home, getting her IDs, enrolling into CalFresh and Medi-Cal. So she must be in Los Angeles somewhere. Or not Los Angeles, California, maybe Los Angeles, but she must be in California now. Uh, And counseling for both drugs and support therapy. Now, before I go on, Trader Ruski, what do you think happened after they made that offer? This is this is recent. This is on August 25th. I don't know. I think she may have gone right back to where she was comfortable. Worse. She refused them. She refused the offers. So why? Why, why would she want to stay living under a bridge and doing drugs constantly when these were the source of her problems in the first place when she was being offered – a private home, 
getting her IDs back. She must have lost her IDs, and if they give her assistance in recovering her IDs, and and getting her onto the CalFresh and Medi-Cal public assistance programs, and also getting her counseling and support. It sounds like uh, someone's handing her on a platter the ability to get back into normalcy. Why did she decline it? Well, they declined it because they would not take in her street boyfriend, too. She said, if he doesn't come, I don't go. And uh, strangely enough, I can kind of understand it. I'm not saying she made the right decision, but there is this weird thing, especially in the U.S., where there's a lot more value placed upon the life of attractive women, especially, uh, or in this case, formerly attractive women, than than there is on men. When men get kidnapped, when men get murdered, when men get uh, killed, it's just, okay, kind of sucks, but oh well, another guy died, whatever. If if an attractive woman disappears or gets murdered, it's like a major, major story, especially if she's white. If it's an attractive white woman, something happens to her, it's a major story. Anyone else, it's not a huge story. So like if it's an unattractive woman or if it's it's a woman who's just not white or a woman who's old... Or, uh, or if it's a man of any kind, then no, nobody cares. Like, there'll be a little mention of it, but nobody's going to care that much. If, if it's an attractive woman who, who's in distress, then everybody wants to help. Everybody goes into a panic. There's actually a name for this. It's called the missing white woman syndrome. So even though she's not attractive anymore, she was once very attractive. She was once a fairly successful porn star. People still look at those pictures. People, some people remember jerking it to her. And they were like, well, we got to help her. So they go to her and go, hey, look, look at all these things we're going to do for you. And she's like, oh, sweet. That's so nice of you. So you're going to help him too, my boyfriend. He's got, this, he's got the same problems as me. Uh, no, no, we're not helping dudes. No, he can stay under the, under the bridge. We don't care about him. He doesn't matter. Porn star lives matter. Dudes' lives don't matter. So that's basically what they told her. I could see why they kind of piss her off because he was kind of there for her. They're kind of like a team down there under the bridge. And then uh, they're like, no, you know, he wasn't the former porn star, so we, w- we don't want to help him. Now, I can understand the people offering it, that if they're doing this, that whoever was doing this is someone who's just got nostalgia for what she once was and just wants to help her for that reason. And they're like, look, I'm not offering to take in the entire homeless community or your friends. I'm, I'm helping you specifically because a lot of people once liked you, and there's a lot of people in the community who want to see you get better, so we're only offering this to you. So I can see both sides of it. Like, the person offering to help her isn't obligated to help her boyfriend, but at the same time, I can see why this doesn't make sense to her. Like, why, why do I deserve this and he doesn't? Just because I, I was once a hot chick and, and, and he never was? So I can kind of understand it. That is a lot of loyalty on her part that she's refusing it. I think some of it is also she just doesn't... Sometimes people don't want to get better if, if the current situation they're in is what they're used to, even if it's bad. There's even some people who don't want to be released from prison. They get so used to prison life, they're kind of uncomfortable being thrown out back out into society. And they, some people kind of just prefer being in prison once they get used to it. So she might be thinking, okay, they can get me into all this, but then what? What, I gotta just go take some regular job at that point, make very little money, maybe get by some public assistance, and, and, and what do I do now? 
and I'm not hot anymore. I'll never be hot again. Uh, you know, what do I do? What do I do with myself? I'm, I'm more used to this life where I hang out with people on the street and do drugs. So she, uh, she refused it. They said that uh, the person also said, we've been in, co- in, co- in touch with a young relative of hers, as, long, as well as the Dutch producers, uh, also with help of Southern Nevada and Search a Light. See, I don't understand why they're in contact with help, help of Southern Nevada, which is some organization, but then they're trying to get her onto CalFresh and Medi-Cal, which are California things. I don't quite get that part. From the one-hour face-to-face, we concluded that she's on the edge of wanting to change, but is unwilling to let go of the boyfriend. While we are not doctors, we do believe she can recover if she gets treatment now. The drugs are taking a heavy toll on her mentally and physically. Yeah, I I would believe that part. In fact, I believe all of that. Also, they mentioned that there is a scammer who is trying to take advantage of the recent publicity of this story, and the scammer is collecting donations for her and then just keeping all the money himself. Uh, A scammer based out of London is running a fundraiser supposedly on behalf of Jenny Lee. But uh, when they met up with her in late August and asked, hey, well, how's that fundraiser going? She's like, what fundraiser? <laughs> so she said, I've never been in touch with anyone in London. I don't know what you're talking about. There is no fun le- fundraiser. And clearly this person knows nothing about me. They're just pocketing the money. So some guy in London is deciding to make money off this from people who are nostalgic for her porn days. So that's the current update. I want to thank Forum Wars for, uh, or not Forum Wars, it was uh, Dive Bar Dave who found this, not Forum Wars. I want to give credit where it's due. Dive Bar Dave, a frequent listener to this show, he found this update. And that's also interesting. I wonder if there is some homeless girl uh, fetish site. You know what? Maybe we should start one. Maybe that. Maybe that's a niche that has not been explored yet. Like uh, homelesspussy.com. Let's see if that exists. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to type that in right now. First, I'm going to see if, if you can get to anything on it. I'm going to see if the site actually has been registered anywhere. Uh, I cannot reach it. Now we're going to see if it's registered anywhere. Let's see. Someone's going to go register this before I can. I know it. I think I've just given someone a great idea. Well, actually, you started. It was, it's really your idea. No, oh, no. Guess what? It is registered. <laughs> so someone beat us to it. Someone actually beat us to it uh, pretty long ago. Someone in uh, 2004 thought about homelesspussy.com. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 15 years too late on this. But it's, it's not actively running. I guess it didn't catch on. I guess they thought this was going to be huge, and they're like, you know what? For some reason, people just don't want to pay for this. Some reason this isn't what people fantasize about. But if it ever does come out online, I'm going to to try to contact Jenny Lee and let her know that she's got a a new opportunity. (laughs) I don't think if they ever really had a site like this that they would use actual homeless people. Because the truth is they're usually not very attractive unless they're like very recently homeless. They usually end up looking like her. I do wonder where they get the money for these drugs. Like, are these hard drugs expensive? How, how do the homeless get money for these drugs constantly? I never understood that. 
So that's that's the situation right now. Stephanie Sedora. Let me see if she has any hand in mob results. Erica Trank had a little bit. She had like seven thousand in total caches. Let's see if Stephanie Sedora has anything. Uh, what, what might even be a bigger fetish site is uh, the nude pictures of all the dead people. Yeah, well, we can combine them both here from this show. Um, let's see here. Scrolling down, I can't. I'm looking at another site here. Supposedly, she retired from pornography in 2009 to then concentrate on modeling. But then this site, which is usually pretty good, Heavy.com, they clearly have something wrong here because it says Stephanie Sedora pictured in October 2017. I, I, this picture clearly wasn't taken in 2017. It's a much older picture. But I guess she went to, to quote, modeling in 2009. Oh, and uh, on one online profile, she's listed as a life coach. <laughs> I don't think that's a person I want giving me life advice. She's like, you know, Todd, you could be doing better if you left your house and if you just went down to the tunnels. Have you tried living in a tunnel yet? Have you tried? Maybe if you're not happy with your friends, it's because they're not tunnel people. Maybe, maybe you have disloyal friends because they're not living in tunnels. You ever think of that? You ever think that the problem is you're living above ground instead of underground? Okay, I think you've learned. Now go out and get in that tunnel. Like, what, what kind of life coaching does she do? Uh, she was active on a motorcycle forum as recently as May 2019. How's she even posting? She posted on uh, May 3rd, 2019 on a site called uh, scsportsbikes.com, which is uh, Sin City Sports Bikes. I have is there really a forum just for sport bikes in, in Las Vegas? I would think that's a pretty uh, niche discussion topic. Like, how, how many? I, I got to take a look at these forums afterwards. Like, how, how many posts could be on a, a Sin City sports bike site? But anyway, she posted that she has an O2 Yamaha R1, and she said, "My fairings are falling apart. Wanted fairings OEM after whatever for a fair price. Email is the best way to reach me. SLSedora at Gmail." You know, I should email her. She's checking email as of May 2019. Maybe I should email her and uh, see if she wants to come on the show. She probably doesn't have a phone. But uh, maybe it's worth a shot. slsedora at gmail.com as of May 2019. Her name on there is Miss Sedora. So she's getting to a computer somehow, and she has a a bike somewhere that's kind of falling apart. But she's willing to pay a fair price for it. This is really weird. Take a look at this forum now. SC Sports Bikes. Um, okay, so parts of the forum are very dead. Um, let's see here. I'm looking if there's any active discussions. There. No, there's not. Okay, I feel better. If, if this is more active than Poker Fraud Alert, I was about to shut the whole thing down. I, I was really just about to pull the plug on all of Poker Fraud Alert. If this, if this was doing better than Poker Fraud Alert, because it has like, like, like 15 forums listed. I'm like, shit, if this... If Sin City Sports Bikes is doing better than Poker Fraud Alert, it's, it's time to hang it up. Then I've done something wrong. But it's not, thankfully. SC Sport, it's not Sports Bikes, scsportbikes.com. But looking, uh, all the forums 
their last post is at least uh, two months ago, or I'd say about at least six weeks ago, except for one forum where the last post is uh, like about a month ago. So they haven't had a post there in a month on the entire forum. And some of their sub-forums haven't been posted on in like a year. So, okay, fine. Fine. They, they do have a, a, a lot of posts in total. Less than Poker Fraud Alert, but they, they look like they have like about 100,000 posts total, or maybe even more. They're not doing that bad. They just recently have been dead. But yeah, they, they found that on Heavy.com. Good find on, that, on their part. Uh, she has a LinkedIn page. Everybody has a LinkedIn page now. Even the, even the homeless have a LinkedIn page. And that's where she mentions her life coaching. Embrace a change for number four life. That's the that was her life coaching company. The the funny thing is, <laughs> you're seeing the people also viewed portion. So it says Stephanie Sedora, and then people also viewed Jenny Lee, student at University of Phoenix. <laughs> and the reason that's funny is it's probably a different Jenny Lee. It's probably an actual girl named Jenny Lee who goes to the University of Phoenix somewhere. I mean, University of Phoenix is not actually Phoenix, but it's probably just some girl who goes to the University of Phoenix or did, went to there. Yeah, she's in Massachusetts. It's definitely not the same person. And now she's probably getting contacted by perverts who are like, hey, Jenny, you know, I, I can let you in my home. Actually, I do wonder that. So you have current Stephanie Sedora looking like a meth head who looks like way older than her age and just like isn't attractive at all anymore. But then you have old Stephanie Sedora slash Jenny Lee who was hot and a porn star that was fairly popular. So let's say you watched her back in the day. And let's even say you saw some of her recent modeling work from like 2013 and she used to look decent. When you see her looking this way in 2019, can you like can you like put that aside? Like, would, do you think there's guys who would just want to have sex with her because of what she used to be rather than what she is, or would that be like too distracting? But what do you think, Trader Risky? Sorry, Jeff. Um, repeat the question again. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm asking, like, do you think there's a lot of guys out there who would still want to have sex with her because of what she was, even <laughs> despite the fact of what she looked like today? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure there's something for everybody, but oh, God, that'd be a rough one. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm I, sure there's a few out, few sickos out there. Look, I, I'll, I will admit this. I will admit that if, if there is a girl that I liked before and then some time passes and she's not nearly as attractive as she was when I first liked her, um, I, I will like semi look past it and kind of see her more what I had once remembered her to be. Uh, so like I, I would have that factor going on somewhat, even if uh, her looks declined a lot. So I can kind of understand guys who feel that way. I couldn't feel that way about a porn star because you, like you don't have a connection with a porn star. That, I think that's the difference. If you had an emotional connection with someone, at least even at one point, then it's easier to still find things attractive about them or, or, or kind of see them the way they once were uh, once uh, things go downhill. But like a porn star, you don't have a personal connection. You're not, you don't have a personal friendship with them. Like You don't have an emotional connection with them, or at least you shouldn't. So there, I, I, that wouldn't happen with me. But I, I think there are guys who, who would. I think there are guys who'd like, yeah, yeah, I'm banging Jenny Lee. Here's a picture of her. 
then they show you a picture from like 2009. Then you get jealous until you see the truth. Okay, so that's going on, and hopefully she gets the help she needs. Hopefully she wants the help she needs. She, she has help right there waiting for her. She just doesn't want it. Now, I don't usually do advice segments on the site, but in the spirit of life coaching, I've been inspired, and I've decided that I'm going to do some life coaching here. This just happened right now. I just made a snap decision to do this. And I'm going to read a post from the Poker Fraud Alert Forum from a, a concerned listener of the show. Okay, not, not about the show, but about himself. Okay, here we go. The subject of this post is, I can't get my dick hard anymore and need advice. Here's the post. So I could always get it up into my mid-40s easily. Now I can't get it up anymore going on to my 50s. I also watch porn. No, no word if it's uh, Jenny Lee porn. And it doesn't help anymore like it used to. Can anyone help me understand how to get my dick up like I could back in the day? Should I take vitamins or etc.? I need advice. Signed, Jay Souza. And this is posted publicly in the forum. I'm not revealing anything privately that's em- embarrassing. Well, you can take vitamins or etc. I don't know what etc. would be. What would etc. be? But uh, vitamins or etc. You, you can do that, but that's not likely to help the problem. Uh, Jay Souza and, and other guys here in their 50s, you can't get it up. This, this segment's for you. The problem is that the male body changes around age 50 in many people. Not all, but, but there are many guys who see their sexual desire and ability to get it up decline in their early 50s and beyond. It, it kind of starts around 50 for, for a lot of guys, unfortunately. So they can be like all the way, like he said, you can be all the way fine through your mid-40s, and then things can start to decline, and you're like, what the hell, this, this is never a problem before. So, uh, so this guy, he turns on porn, he's like, oh, still not working, I'm trying. Let's see if this Jenny Lee thing's working. Nope, let me see if I can see a newer thing. Oh my god, no, 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 let's go back to the old one. But he just can't make it work, and the problem is that it's a physical thing. He's he's going by this the wrong way. Porn's not going to help, and and trying to get yourself more turned on is not going to help. The problem is you've just aged, and the male body changes, and and not for the better. And and this can start happening, and it's probably from low testosterone, which declines with age. And then you have to decide, do I want to take testosterone supplements? And I, I actually met someone from the forum this summer who told me that he took testosterone supplements. I'm not going to say who it is. It's not, not a well-known person anyway. But, but he told me he did, and he, he was very uh, high on them. He was very uh, happy he did and said that it really improved things for him, which I believe. But there are risks. You, they, they can cause stroke. They can cause cancer. They can cause heart attacks. Like, like the, the real big killers of, of people in this country, it can cause all of these things to come on if you take a testosterone supplement. So it's, it's a trade-off. You can take it and uh, you're taking a small but realistic risk that you're going to have these side effects down the line that can kill you. Or you can just resign yourself to the fact that things are changing and that you may not be able to get it up anymore or that well. And that your sexual desire has gone downhill, and there's other negative things that happen when you have low testosterone. So it's it's a the trade-off. Every guy's got to kind of decide what they do. 
Uh, if you can't get it up at all, and I'm not a doctor here, obviously, but I, if you can't get it up at all, I would think maybe it is time to look into that and see if you get you can get the levels tested very easily with a blood test. And then if it is low, it may, maybe you do want to try it under supervision of a doctor, of course. If you can't get it up at all. If, if you just can't quite get it up as well as you did 10 years ago, then you may want to just deal with the change. That, w- that would be my advice. But that's just my personal feeling on the matter. Um, if I couldn't get it up at all and thought that that could be the solution, I, I think I would probably take the chance. Uh, you can also use Viagra, but Viagra is kind of... Uh, it's, it's just something that... It seems a little bit uh, like a mood killer. You've got to take it before sex, and you've got to wait a certain amount of time. Like, like Who wants to do that? When you want to have sex, you just want to have sex. You don't You don't want to go popping pills and then wait some time for, for your dick to go up. I mean, that just... It, it doesn't seem appealing to me. I, I've never taken it before. But... I guess if... Yeah, that's safer to take than, than the testosterone supplements, but... I don't know. This is a, a discussion you'd probably be better off having with your doctor. But I, I think that probably is at least the culprit for why this has happened to you. And it actually happens to a lot of guys around that age. So if you're younger, if you're one of the younger people listening to this show who's like under 45, then uh, enjoy it while it lasts before it, it, it uh, starts to decline. Which doesn't happen to everybody. But it happens to some people. And... There's some belief that uh, exercising a lot can stop it and uh, diet can stop it. But, but the truth is uh, a lot of it just is going to occur on its own just from aging. So that's, that's our advice segment. It's our life coaching segment here. The, and we, we have a lot of listeners in their 50s. There's a, a big demographic here. The age range of what typically listens to this show, the demographic we are aiming at, and that actually listens is males between 35 and 60. That's a, we have some people older, we have some people younger, but it's mostly males between 35 and 60. Of course, a lot of those being over 50. So I know a lot of you listening right now probably uh, have some issues in that department. Some of you don't, and you're fortunate, but some of you do. So there's some advice for you. <laughs> I just thought of that because I saw it in front of me when I was looking at the forum topics in front of my face. That was not even a planned segment, believe it or not. I, I bet we're not going to hear this segment on the 2 plus 2 poker cast. Or that, wait, that doesn't exist anymore. The, uh, the, the DAT poker cast, or whatever it's called. The one that Adam Schwartz now does with Negranu and Terrence Chan. I, I don't think you're going to hear them talking about uh, how to get it up over, after 50. Uh, I, 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 someone texted me, hey, I just want to let you know Adam Schwartz is probably stealing topics from your show because when I listen to his show, I, I hear a lot of the same stuff and uh, it seems like he does a show after yours and he's probably ripping off your show. And then I said, no, that's, that's not what's happening. We just both cover a lot of the same topics that are big topics in, in poker or gambling at the moment. So we're going to have overlap without stealing from each other. So they, it, it's kind of like switching channels to a different news station and they're covering the same topic. They're not stealing from each other. They're just copying the t- covering the topic of the day. I do like to try to cover things here, like that Erica Trank story, like this Stephanie Sidoris, Jenny Lee story, things like this that I know most other shows are not going to cover. 
I like bringing you new stuff that you're not going to be able to hear if you listen to other podcasts or other poker radio shows. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is our phone number, if you wish to call. In the meantime, we're going to move on to a topic not about sex, not about porn stars, not about poker players with their breasts out on a platter who end up dying. No, none of that stuff. Something more mundane, though still interesting. Cheating in poker at the EPT has occurred at the EPT Barcelona at a televised table. There's not a final table, but this is one of the tables on TV. And this guy, uh, Quan Zhao, actually had the nerve to cheat while it was televised. So if there's, like, televised cheating going on, can you imagine how much cheating goes on when it's not televised? That, That just shows you... How how much you have to keep your eyes and ears open at tournaments when people are shooting angles on you or cheating? Because if there's guys cheating with the cameras on them, can you imagine how much cheating must go on when cameras aren't on and people know that there's no other people watching? So in late August, Quan Zhao, who I haven't heard of, that's Q-U-A-N-Z-H-O-U, Quan Zhao, was at the feature table of the main event at the EPT Barcelona. And he had uh, pocket sixes, and he raised only to get uh, three bet, and he thinks for a second what to do. And this is always a tough spot in tournaments when you've got like a small pocket pair and somebody three bets you pre-flop. What do you do at that point? Do you try to set mine? Then do you what? What if it's a board that like Ace King would miss? Then do you do you still call down like, if, or or do you just ditch the whole thing pre flop? Or do you even think that maybe you could push the guy off? You just go all in. So he has sixes. He gets three bets, and he go. He thinks about it a short time, and then he does a really nasty thing. He takes his cards, he slides them towards the dealer as if he's folding, and then, at the last second before he releases the cards out of his hand. He jerks them back to himself once he sees that his opponent thinks he's folded and his opponent takes another look at his hand. So he's trying to get a reaction from his opponent and then once his opponent picks up the cards to kind of look at them again, which sometimes people just do after their opponent folds when they three-bath. I just want to see what I had again. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, Did I really have what I thought I had? Like, whatever. Uh, His opponent did that. You could see in the video, he has his eyes on the opponent's cards while he's doing this. So now he gets to see what his opponent has, maybe. And what ended up happening was his opponent flopped top two pair. And uh, Quan Zhu checked folded. Now, yes, uh, that was a bad flop for him. But it's also possible that he saw that what the hand was, and he was really in trouble. So here, here's a little video of it, which on the radio doesn't play the best, but uh, I play it anyway. Here, uh, Zhu has six six, and his uh, opponent uh, Ponomarev. I haven't heard of him either. This is his last name as Ace King. Raising a three bet in front of you, Ace Queen certainly not a powerhouse 
in that situation. So he he walks away. Somebody else folded his queen to the three bet. Good fold. Line up so, his chip stack. So Zhu is thinking about what to do here. He's already been three bet. He's thinking about what to do. Ponarev has, has three bet him with ace king. So we're about 35 big blinds deep and out of position with sixes. It's a little rough. Stacking up the chips. chips going in. Now keep in mind, Ponarev has Zhu covered big time, so I think if he goes all in, he's calling the ace king for sure. I always wonder what players are thinking about when they're doing this. Well, it looks like he's thinking about shoving, right? Thinks Ponomarev is at it, then Sixes needs a bit of protection. So, so, so he, this is when he pushes him back. So you're going to hear, whoa. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. What? What? No, do you? I don't. So then he starts sliding it around. That's a, this is the most obvious part of it. This is the case where like, the cover up's worse than the crime. It, it's, it's so obvious because he does this thing where he acts like he's folding. He slowly pushes it out, totally looks like a fold, and then. Jerks it back, and then after a few seconds, he realizes how bad this looks. So then he, he just nonsensically moves the cards around on the table as if he's just kind of moving the cards everywhere. Like, what, what, no, this is just how I move my cards. That's really unnatural and weird. Even if you want to say he was thinking of folding and then decided to change his mind and wasn't angling, once he does the... You know, like, like, like moves his cards around after he pulls a few seconds after he pulls it back. Like nobody would, nobody does that. Nobody slides their cards around the table like that. So, so at this point, he's trying to make it look like this was just—it's just him kind of sliding the cards around. Oh no! no. <laughs> there is a big difference between those two motions. That was some definite forward motion of the cards, and then sideways motion. My goodness. Oh, man. There is definitely an asterisk on this. So then he calls, which is... so. so and, and someone slowed down the video, and you could see Zhu's eyes down on Pomerev's cards as soon as Pomerev looked at the cards. So there's a good chance that he saw that Pomerev had, had ace-king, and then thinking, okay, well, I don't, I don't want to fold now. And it's possible he did this in the first place, so hoping Pomerev would do something like, uh, like either expose his cards or something like that, or uh, or maybe stupidly muck his cards, or uh, or would even look back at them like he did. So once he see, if he did see he had ace king, if you have sixes and you see your opponent has ace king and they have you covered, where you're not gonna, you're not going to be able to run them off the ace king. It's not like you both got huge stacks and you're thinking, okay, I can run them off. Uh, you, you know, you don't have enough chips to run him off ace king pre. So so you don't want to race with the sixes. What you probably want to do then is wait for the flop. Now you know what he has. So if he misses the ace-king, then you can push it in your way ahead of him. If he outflops you, then you check fold. So, you know, of course, knowing your opponent's cards it gives you a gigantic advantage, and that's... So what do you do here? You want to call. You don't want to put the money in more than you have to to see the flop, since you know what he has right now, and you know you can't push him off it. 
All right, makes a call eventually after what we thought was going to be a fall. Definite forward motion in the cards. It really looked like he was handing them over to the dealer, but we're off to a flop. Ace-King-4, Ponomarev smashing this one. Well, and the other thing is his eyes weren't looking at his cards when he did it. They were looking at his opponent. Oh, that makes me very, very uncomfortable. Well, it looks like it should be fairly inconsequential because yeah. Panamarev is, you know, way ahead on the flop, and it, it doesn't seem like a situation where Zhu would would want to get further involved. Twelve and a half. Wait, no, he's just moving up to the side. Why is the dealer, the dealer his... take the cards? They're joking that when when he folded, they're like, well, no, no, he's not folding. He's just moving to the side. Uh, obviously. This was some kind of angle shot at very minimum, uh, and then possibly outright cheating to try to see the guy's cards. Kessler, or actually, it was Poker Stars Live. Not I thought it was Kessler. Poker Stars Live actually took a poll about this on August twenty eighth. Was this angle shooting? And uh, the choices were clear angle shot or not an angle. There should have been a third one of possibly an angle, but I guess they wanted either one. 94% said a clear angle shot. I want to know who the 6% were that thought this wasn't an angle. The only possible explanation of why this wasn't an angle would be if he was going to fold and then thought, wait a minute, no, I think I want to see a flop. Like he changed his mind. Possible, but then you wouldn't be looking at your opponent while you're doing it. And people have, have frozen screenshots of this, of, of where he's looking as Ponomarev is looking at his cards. And then... From that point, Zhu did exactly what you'd expect if he saw the guy's cards. This looked pretty bad, especially because this was a, a Poker Stars televised event. This is, uh, it actually has a little Poker Stars symbol on the top right. The EPT is owned by Poker Stars. It's been a successful tournament series. Uh, it is the biggest tournament series in Europe. But. Uh, they should. I'm surprised he didn't get disqualified for this, or at least some kind of severe penalty, because this this is pretty bad. Panarav should have said something, but the reason sometimes they don't say something is because uh, I don't think Panarav saw his, his that, that his opponent was looking at his at his cards. I think he just suspected it was an angle, but it, he probably didn't want the hand to be over because he had ace king. And he knows from Zhu's stack size that he doesn't have some monster hand. He probably isn't beating Ace-King pre-flop. So he probably wants to go forward with the Ace-King. He, he doesn't want uh, Zhu to fold, is my guess. So, now, if you knew Zhu saw his cards, it's a different story. Then it's impossible to get money out of him if you're ahead, and, and, and you're going to bust against him if you're, or you're going to double him up if, if, if you're behind. So, he didn't say anything, but still, since this is on TV, someone should have been alerted to this and, and something should have been done. Though, to my knowledge, nothing was actually done about this, which, which is a shame. I don't know much about this Jew character, but everybody in poker, I guess save for 6%, agree this is BS. And uh, very bad. You just got to always be watching for what your opponents are doing. You don't feel shy to speak up if something like this happens. If something weird happens at the table, don't be afraid to say it. 
This was even covered in USA Today, of all things. Even USA Today had this on their site. And this couldn't make Poker Stars or the EPT look good. Even USA Today shows uh, the glancing, the obvious glancing by Zhu as Pominorev is lifting his cards up. The funny thing is the, the, the picture that was posted by Jeff Boski, who's a vlogger, who has me blocked because I, I dared call him out for not being honest with the whole story about when he was banned from Caesars temporarily. I love it when vloggers, like, they put their whole life out there and then they even put out, like, a controversial situation for everyone to comment on. And then, and then someone comments on what really likely happened and why he's not telling the truth. And, oh, you're, 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 I'm deleting your comments. I'm banning I'm, – I'm blocking you on Twitter. Like, that guy's such a freaking hypocrite, this Boski. But, yeah, even USA Today is covering it. But PokerStar should have done something about this. They should have booted him. I don't think anyone would have felt uh, bad for him. I do see that Quan uh, Zhu won a high roller event in Macau and was described as a local player. So if that's true, if he's, if he's like some kind of uh, high-stakes player from Macau, why is, why is he resorting to little cheats like this early in EPT events? Maybe that's how he's been winning, is, is by cheating. It's, it's pretty bad. But sadly, uh, it doesn't look like anything happened to him there. Uh, let, me, let me see his handed mob results. I don't think he cashed at this. But if he did this, especially a tragedy. He has 2.1 million in total caches. Oh, he did cash here. That's really sad. He cashed, uh, looks like a pseudo min cash. He was 158th place. For 11,000 euros, it was a uh, 5,300 euro buy-in. So, yeah, it looks like a min-cash to me or something similar to one. But that's kind of BS. It's kind of BS that he got to cash. He he should have been disqualified. Let's see if this uh, Pominorev, how far he got. Now, it looks like he didn't even, uh, didn't even cash... So somehow Quanju caches and Palmerev, who had the bigger, much bigger stack, did not. It's pretty brutal. Well, once again, the nice guy in poker finishes last. And the angler and the cheater doesn't finish first, but still caches. Pretty crappy. They actually paid 296 spots, so he kind of, he got a while past the min cash. But about doubled his money that he bought in with. That's too bad. I was hoping at least he busted. He didn't have many chips when this went down. Well, just always watch yourself at tournaments. You never know what happens. Moving to our next subject. Phil Helmuth is back in hot water 
a lot of controversy here regarding him taking some of Mike Mattisau's stack from the table at a high-stakes live-at-the-bike game. For those of you that don't know, you're not allowed to take chips off the table, as I mentioned during the intro. Whatever you have on the table has to stay on the table until you actually quit the game. If you do take chips off the table, it's known as going south. It's a violation. It's not allowed. If it's caught, the other players have a right to demand that you put the chips back on the table. In other cases, people have been kicked out of the game for going south, even if they're willing to put the chips back. There's also what's known as going north, and that is in games where there's a capped buy-in. This doesn't apply to like limit games, because usually that doesn't matter to have a huge stack on the table. But in no-limit games, or pot-limit games, where having a, a big stack can matter, uh, if there is a max buy-in, as there often is at those type of games, uh, sometimes people will sneak extra chips on the table as they're playing to make it look like those are their winnings, so they have the advantage of a big stack. That's called going north. Uh, going south is more common, though, where people just want to protect their winnings and will sneak chips off the table. So they are not risking it anymore. And you'd expect this type of thing from a novice or from uh, just kind of an unknown player who doesn't want to follow that rule and wants to hold on to whatever money he won. You'd expect that. And if you heard that just some random went south of going uh, live with the bike, I, I wouldn't even make this a topic of the show. It would be that uninteresting. But the two players involved in this situation are very well known and have been for a very long time. That is Phil Helmuth and Mike Matisau. So they were in Los Angeles for the WPT Legends of Poker that's taken place uh, at the bike for many years now. And I don't know if they were still in the tournament or if this is a break or what it was or before or after the tournament, but they live at the bike, the, the internet televised cash game that I've played on a few times myself, was being broadcast, and it was a pretty high-stakes one. It was a 5,100 no-limit hold'em. They have a lot of different games on Life of the Bike. They have lower stakes, like 2-5, and then they have all the way up to, uh, I think they even have lower than that occasionally, all the way up to these these uh, high-stakes games. So 5,100 no-limit's obviously a big game. And Helmuth and Mattisau joined the game. So the problem was that Helmuth couldn't stay that long, so he needed to get up and leave. The problem was Mike Mattisau, who many of you know does not hold on to money very well. Well, Helmuth does. Helmuth has a lot of money. Mattisau is the opposite. He's perpetually broke. And apparently Helmuth is the one who put Mattisau in the game. And Helmuth knew what might happen if he just left Mike Mattis out to play with uh, with that money and just left the game, that Mike Mattis out might, choke, might, might chunk it off. So Helmuth wanted to lock up his profits. Whatever agreement they had for the staking, Helmuth wanted his piece now. But the problem was Mattis out wasn't ready to quit. So Helmuth said, Mike, I'm going to have to quit, bro. It's only fit... Uh-oh, I think we're losing Trader Risky here. Is that what's happening here? I'm not sure what that was. You still with us, Trader Risky? 
Either that or a submarine was going by. One of those two things. Can you hear us, Trader Risky? Hmm. Well, he may be... Uh, maybe he fell asleep. What is with these weird sound effects? No, no, no. Sorry, Truff. Did you... Wait, you, did we have the, I just walked out beyond my Wi-Fi, so, oh, but it's okay. kept me on. Oh, no. The, yeah, there was the weird things, the weird different sounds. First it sounded like a submarine, then it sounded like a, just a weird beep. Very strange. Yeah, that's weird because I was muted the whole time, so who knows? Yeah, I think I think there's Skype sound effects that it gives me, which I used to be able to turn off but can't anymore because Skype sucks. So anyway, uh, going on about uh, Helmuth and uh, and Mattisau. Uh, Mattisau was so 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 Helmuth said it's only fair I can get off, bro. The first one is your money, so just give me half, bro. So I, I think what he was trying to say is that uh, I'm not sure if Mattisau had won by that point or if if Helmuth bought half of him. I don't know what it was. He said, the first one is your money, so give me half. So it basically Helmuth was saying, according to their agreement, you owe me half of what you have right now. And uh, if you don't want to quit along with me, then just give me the part you owe me. Well, the problem here is that's going south. Mattisau cannot take the chips off the table regardless of where they came from. So as Mattisau was doing it, like, okay, here we go, Phil. And one of the the players at the table said, hold on a second. Uh, What's going on here? So Helmuth said that since Mattisau wasn't quitting and he'd still be playing, that uh, that he needs his part. And... What the hell does that have to do with the other players at the table? It doesn't. He's such a a fucking scumbag. No, Helmuth just... Goddamn ridiculous. He he just thinks the rules never apply to him. So he just thinks... I wish somebody got up and just punched him in the face. (laughs) That's going to happen one day. He just just thinks, I I want my money now. I don't don't trust Mike not to chunk it off. So uh, I'm leaving, and uh, therefore the game's over. If Mike wants to keep playing, he's going to stay with his own money. And and I'm taking it. So Helmuth... his excuse will probably be he's treating it as if they're both leaving the game and Mike's just coming back. But you can't do that. You, uh, that's not how it works. The, every card room has their own policy about how much time you have to be away from the table to come back with a lesser stack. Uh, but there's no way you can just leave and come back a minute later and say, okay, I'm, I'm taking my seat again now. You can't do that. You, you have to... And he, they didn't even try that ruse. They just He just took the money. So... $20,000 or so was given to Helmuth, and then Helmuth... 20000 yes. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say, like, 1000 No, 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 because the 5100 No Limit game. So so then 20000 goes goes to Helmuth, who then rubs it into everybody and, and says something like, uh, Woohoo! Yeah! Yum, yum, yum! <laughs> I mean, he just, he just doesn't care. And then... Uh, one player was was kind of pissed off about this and it was complaining. And Phil's response was classic, classic helmet. Uh, he says, "Well, you can quit if you like, bro." <laughs> now you don't like it that we're screwing you on the on the going south rule. We're just we're just totally breaking the rules here. Hey, you don't like it, you can quit. That solves it all, right? So then. Mattisau had to save face at that point and said that uh, Helmuth should have asked the other players for their opinion before taking it, but Mike also didn't have to give it. He's acting like he had no control here. 
Mike could have just said, no, Phil, I can't do it because this is going south. This isn't allowed. But I think he didn't want to because he, he wants future stakes from, from Helmuth. So if he says, no, F you, Phil, you're not taking anything till I leave the game, then Phil's going to say, okay, well, this is the last time I stake you. So if, I think Mike felt like he had to do what Phil said. Almost like Phil was his boss. Like, well, you know, Helmuth, he should have asked people before doing it. I agree with that one. No, and you know what? He should have asked him. Oh, yeah, I know. Mike should have asked Mike should have asked him. I owe him 20K. Do you guys mind if I take it out of the game? If not, I'm going to have to quit or something. Yeah. You know, it's not a, you know. I mean, what was the floor man doing? Just I don't know. There? It's usually what happens when there's a controversy there in life of the bike and these higher stakes things. They just, for some reason, the floor man don't get involved very much. And uh, uh, so that's, that's what happened. And they got away with it. <laughs> Nothing happened. And. It went on, and the guy who didn't like it was told, hey, if you don't like it, uh, you can quit. So that's uh, that's that's what happened there. And Well, if you're ever at the bike and want to take uh, chips off the table, a precedent has been sent. Yeah, set I'll, for the I'll, say, there. I'll say, yeah, look, look, Helmut did it. I can do it. Yeah. I should try that. I should just try to go to, like, some small game there and then do that and let's see what happens. Kind of, I can put the poor Hanson kid through torture. He'll he'll be the one commentating, and I'll have to put him in the uncomfortable position about commenting on this, making his own company look bad. It's not his company, but the company he's working with now. So that's it's pretty obnoxious, but it's it's so typical. Helmuth always thinks that he's above everybody else, that he can do what he wants. That's why he misbehaves at the table. That's why he he uh, he just he does these crazy entrances. Uh, uh, and distracts everybody, and he, he just Helmuth thinks that whatever he wants to do, it doesn't really matter. The the rules don't apply to him, and that's why you know people ask me why were you being a jerk to Helmuth when he did that thumbs up motion to raise the limit hold'em event, and then why did you claim that wasn't a raise when you're in the big blind? Why are you shooting angles on him? And I thought, no, there's a lot of reasons here, and and, and one of them is that Helmuth always thinks that he can just make up his own rules. So this was. Kind of a message to Helmuth, among other things, that no, you can't. <laughs> I wouldn't let him make up his own rules. And to the credit of the floor man, they, they didn't let him get away with that one. They actually ruled that the thumbs up motion is not a does not mean raise if you don't say anything else. Which makes sense because you know how do you know if thumbs up could be like I like my cards? It could mean anything. It's it's not uh, that's not raise. That's not an accepted uh, raise. Now I wouldn't have done that to most other players, but Helmuth, I thought it was appropriate. And then I won the hand because of it, too, because I uh, I got to see the flop, flopped a flush draw, and then cracked his kings. So, uh, Helmuth also, if you remember, was the one who got Jared Blesnick unbanned from the World Series of Poker. He was banned for life, Blesnick, after tearing up cards and creating a scene at an event. And then within three days, not only was he unbanned for life, he was unbanned immediately and was playing again. And I think he got deep in the main event that year. And it came out, thanks to me, by the way, nobody else knew, but I found out and I put it out there, that uh, Helmuth was the one who got Blesnick back in. That He went to Jack Effel and said, hey, Jack, do this for me, unban Blesnick, and Jack did. So Helmuth is used to wielding this type of power, and he's, he's used to never getting in any kind of trouble. And I think that's the key here. Helmuth knows that when he's on live at the bike, people want to watch. 
So they're never going to say to him in Life of the Bike, okay, Helmuth, you're pull the shit again. You're not coming back. He knows that they need him more than he needs them. He's just playing there just because he feels like playing there. He doesn't need Life of the Bike for exposure. So he knows they want him there. He knows the World Series wants him there. So he just does what he wants and then figures that no matter what happens, he's not going to get in trouble. Even if all the rulings don't always go his way, that he won't get in trouble. And in this case, they, they just let him get away with it. And that's, and, and that's pretty bad for Life of the Bike, too. They, life, since, again, since this is a televised thing, not on actual TV, but it's on internet television. Obviously, those in charge are seeing this, or if they're not, they can be made aware of it. And at that point, someone should come in and say, hey, Phil, I'm sorry you can't do that. And if they don't want to punish him and say you can't come back or, or do anything or ban him in any way or suspend him in any way, that's fine. I, I understand live at a bike. I understand it's a business that they that when helmets on there, people want to watch that that's something they can promote later and that they don't want to ban him from the show. Fine. But at least go there and say, no, I'm sorry, Phil, you can't take this off. But I think they just didn't want to piss him or Mattisau off because that's they like having people like that on the show. And if they have a bad experience there, then they may not want to come back. But it sucks. They should have done something about it. There shouldn't be this type of favoritism, and unfortunately there is. Someone who uh, did not get favoritism is rapper Fetty Wap, who I've never heard of before. I haven't heard of a lot of these rappers, though, to be fair. I'm not a rap fan, especially modern rap. So it's possible I just uh, haven't heard of the guy before. Uh, looking up Fetty Wap on the uh, on YouTube here. Here's a song called uh, "Trap Queen." This is from five years ago. RGF Production. This is this has 654 million views. So I, I, now I kind of feel like they really square for not knowing who he is. Have hey, you heard of this guy before, Trader Risky? I hadn't heard of him, but when I asked uh, one of my friends who's more familiar with that stuff, he's oh yeah, Freddie Wap. You don't know him. So. <laughs> I, I'm like, hey, what's up, hello? Since you're pretty as soon as you came in the door, I just want to... Looks like he has a messed up eye. Like, he has one eye that looks like it completely just doesn't work. I don't know if it's an accident or something, or... He got shot at one point, who knows? But it looks like he has, like, one eye. Chill, got a sack for us to roll. Married to the money, introduced her to my stove. Showed her how to whip, and now she remixing for low. This trap queen, I don't know what that's referring to. Um, the tr- the term trap that I know is actually referring to transsexuals who pretend not to be when they go out with guys. So when someone's referred to, when a woman's referred to as a trap, that's usually like a a woman with a penis, and it's called a trap because you're being trapped into thinking you're dating a regular woman, and then you you take your clothes off and you get the bad news. That's the trap I know of, but I, I think that's not what he was referring to in this song. I, I, I think maybe it has to do with money or maybe getting trapped as far as a guy who's rich that gets a girl pregnant and then he's 
trapped supporting her and the baby for 18 years. I think that's what this is referring to. Especially because I, I don't think like transsexuals would be a topic that rappers would typically cover. The, like the rapper doesn't want to be known as as the guy who who had sex with transsexuals. That's that's that doesn't give you a lot of cred in the community. Anyway, here, here's why I'm bringing up Fetty Wap. There's a reason for this. Uh, Fetty Wap was arrested for punching an employee at the Mirage Las Vegas. Here, here's the story, and if, if this seems familiar, it's because. There have been other rappers in trouble recently in Las Vegas. It wasn't just uh, Fetty Wap. And uh, it wasn't even too long ago when this, uh, when this last happened. So here, here's what occurred. Fetty Wap on, uh, what was it? it looks like this past Sunday was at the Mirage and supposedly he was in an altercation with a valet attendant, though there's some conflicting reports that uh, it was somebody else. It was in front of the casino and it was away from the valet area. But the thing that is not in dispute is that he did punch a casino employee three times at the Mirage Either the valet area right in front of it But somewhere on Mirage property He posted one. He punched one of their employees three times That happened for sure The Las Vegas Police Department Arrested him at about 8.30am On battery charges And he was later released on his own recognizance For those of you that don't know what that means It just means there was no bail He is going to be facing Three misdemeanor counts of battery In October and uh, the MGM, which owns the Mirage, has not made a statement about this. And, Ma- and uh, Fetty Wap, whose name is really uh, Willie Maxwell II, has not made a statement. Meek Mill, we talked about on this show, another rapper, had an incident earlier this year, in May, when the Cosmopolitan threw him out. So that was... Uh, Another incident, though he didn't punch anybody. But Fetty Wap uh, apparently punched somebody three times who worked for the casino. The three misdemeanor counts of battery he's facing are for the three punches. He was actually charged uh, one count for each punch. (laughs) I have to think that's going to be reduced to one count eventually, but... He'll probably something will probably happen. It may be probation. Yeah, and I thought I had read draft that he punched three security guards once, but it was definitely once, three times, one, three times. Uh, I wouldn't say definitely. I'm seeing conflicting reports. I didn't, I didn't hear that, but I guess it's possible. There's so many different uh, reports about this, so who knows? But that, that was the last. Oh, you know what? I, I, th- I see on TMZ, they were three people, so that makes more sense. Here's an update. On TMZ today at uh, 12.26 p.m. Pacific. According to poli- the police report, the three individuals Fetty Wap allegedly punched were all security officers who were attempting to break up an altercation already in progress. All three men suffered minor scratches and facial pain. So that, uh, and it supposedly he, uh, at first it was said he punched a valet guy and two other employees. Now they're saying that it was uh, all security guards. 
that so anyway I don't know if he was part of the allegation or if he was part of the altercation that was already going on or if uh, he probably was he was probably fighting with someone or about to fight with someone and then they tried to break it up and then he punched three six three different security guards actually see the mugshot on TMZ you can see the bad eye there so we'll see what happens with that we uh, see a lot of these because these rappers obviously have money. So they go to casinos. And the, a lot of these rappers, are kind of not too different from Phil Helmuth, they're used to doing what they want. They're used to having an entourage of people who kiss their ass. They're not used to being told no. And they also have kind of an image to maintain, kind of like a, a, a tough guy image that they... Don't let anyone push them around or tell them what to do. So all of that together makes for a bad combination when you're at a casino where basically what the casino says goes. And that's when this stuff can blow up. Especially if these are people who have a background of where, where violence is something that occurs regularly. So yeah, you're about to get in a fight with someone outside the Mirage. Security comes and breaks it up. You're like, no, hell no. They're not going to stop me from... from do what I need to do, and you punch the security guards. I have to imagine after this, he's going to get banned from all MGM properties as well. Uh, let's see, what else we got here? I'll give you an update on this eventually if there's a change to the whole story. But just wanted to mention another rapper got in trouble. At the casino. Here's somebody else who got in trouble, not for punching anybody, but for doing something to someone physically that they wanted to have done. So how could that get you in trouble if you're doing something that uh, the person receiving is enjoying? Well, if it's at work and if what you're doing is making out with someone and if somebody else at work does not enjoy being in such an environment and seeing this. So here's what happened. Uh, Kevin Ortsman, who was the regional director of Caesars Properties in Atlantic City, which is a pretty high position, was making out with a female employee who worked for him. This occurred actually all the way back in May 2017. And a woman who felt that uh, she was uncomfortable seeing this and made a complaint. At work, sexual harassment is not just directly when one person harasses another. It can be, but you can also claim sexual harassment if you're in a work environment where sexually type stuff, sexual type stuff is occurring in front of you and you're not comfortable seeing it there. It's it's creating a a sexual environment which shouldn't be at your workplace. You can claim sexual harassment uh, over that as well. In fact, there was a, supposedly, I don't have proof, but I've heard a lot of rumors that there was a sexual harassment lawsuit against poker stars about Negranu and Amanda Leatherman making out in the past. Not recently, but uh, a number of years ago when they were dating the first time, that they were making out a lot on, on the set of the Poker Stars Big Game 
uh, Amanda was an announcer there, and and she and or an interviewer, and Negreanu was a player, and the face of Poker Stars, and a female employee filed suit about this, and Poker Stars actually settled over this matter. So while it's a bit misleading to say that a lawsuit was filed against Poker Stars because of Daniel Negreanu sexually harassing someone, that's technically what it was, except it was just that someone felt uncomfortable seeing him and. Amanda Leatherman making out pretty heavily. So something pretty similar here. A woman named Jocelyn Allison said that uh, she was uncomfortable seeing her uh, her boss, Kevin Ortsman, making out with uh, some other female employee there. She said that uh, it made all employees there uncomfortable. And she reported this to a direct supervisor. So she didn't work directly under Ortsman, but he was her boss several levels up. And uh, so she reported this and said that uh, it was making people uncomfortable. Well, a few days later, she alleges that Kevin Ortsman started telling people that there will be hell to pay. These were his words, hell to pay, once he were to find out who was the one who reported him to the company. Once he realized somehow that it was Jocelyn Allison, in fact, he may have had a right to find out who reported him. I don't know how it works there. But uh, once he found out that uh, Jocelyn Allison was the one who reported him, then she claims that she was excluded from executive team thank you emails. (laughs) Does that really matter if you don't get a team thank you email? (laughs) I'm suing you because I don't feel thanked enough. I'm not getting group emails thanking people. But yeah, she, she was excluded from executive team thank you emails uh, and, and also did not receive gifts over the holidays as other employees did, that she was kept out of meetings and treated in a hostile and dismissive manner, and also at one point was falsely av- accused of abusing her position and administrative compensation privileges. Now, these were all claims in her lawsuit. I'm not saying that these things were true, but these are uh, what she claimed in her lawsuit that she filed against Caesars for this matter. Then, in February 2019, she was fired, and they would not give her an explanation for the firing, she claims. The lawsuit also claimed that Caesars had an underrepresentation of female employees, especially female employees in high-level positions. And uh, it also claimed that uh, around the same time she was fired, another person who had complained about the way uh, Kevin Ortsman was was acting was fired as well. The lawsuit says defendants' upper management participated in or were willfully indifferent to the violations, and it's not clear what damages she was looking for. So that was uh, that was the story that was occurring uh, earlier this year, which uh, somehow I missed. I was asleep at the switch. This was a story which came out in July, and probably because I was busy with the main event. And then my subsequent trip, I, I didn't catch this ha- was happening. But this has also been barely talked about. I don't really see very much talk of this at all anywhere. There, there were some New York Post articles about it, but that's about it. This should be getting a lot more play than it's been getting, especially because in August, about a month ago, Caesars announced that it fired Kevin Ortsman over uh, this entire matter.
they filed him after they fired him after an internal investigation revealed that there was enough reason to justify that Ortsman had engaged in some wrongdoing and they decided to let him go on August 9th, 2019 after meeting with uh, Caesar's CEO, Tony Rodeo. Uh, Jocelyn Allison said that she feels vindicated by Ortsman's firing. And uh, she said she she had been uh, with Caesars for 21 years prior to being fired. So this was an older woman, obviously. But uh, um, she said that uh, he was making out with a subordinate after a work function in a way that made other employees uncomfortable. And that the Caesars top executives looked the other way, even as he retaliated. Uh, I, I don't believe the lawsuit has been settled yet nor do I believe it's been uh, hashed out in court at this point so that's still ongoing I believe but uh, they've decided to fire Kevin Ortsman which which is interesting because you would think this would weaken their position if they fired him for this right they're basically admitting fault now (laughs) now it's possible that there's enough evidence that this really was happening that they realize they're screwed and it's just more of a like Maybe they're taking the position now they're just going to settle with her and it's just a matter of what she deserves, which um, had it not been for her being fired. I like I don't care if she's part of thank you emails. It's, I think that's kind of stupid. And, and that's some of these things. Well, but they, that could still be that she's being left out of a lot of meetings. And right. Well, else. yeah. Well, if, if it's if it's an obvious pattern of where she's being left out of a lot of things that started right after this, then yes, then then there's there's a problem. Obviously, the firing is the biggest problem here. Uh, this, again, could be a situation like where the, the cover-up or the retaliation is worse than the crime. Um, when... Well, but it is just stupid. This is a manager you want representing your company. What was what do you say it was, early 2017? Yeah, it was May 2017, yeah. Right, so wasn't that like the peak of the Me Too stuff? I think it was right before it. I, I'm trying to remember when this when this blew up. Uh, it was right when the Harvey Weinstein thing blew up, and I'm, let me see when that was. Uh, it was 2017 at some point. Uh, right. See. So now the judgment that this guy's going to use. Well, I guess it was an after-office function, so that was the only thing that might have swayed well, and, me a it, it, bit it, the other direction. It but. was before the Weinstein stuff really blew up. The Weinstein stuff blew up in October. I just looked up here, and and this was in May. But still, yeah, I agree with you. It's stupid. I agree. Like if, if you're an upper manager, you don't go. If you, if you're having some kind of affair with one of the uh, with one of your coworkers, then just just keep it private. Don't make out with her at work functions. Just uh, right, and it's not even that act. It's just the judgment he's using to do that. Yeah. So so now on the other hand, I, there's a huge difference between being sexually harassed yourself and just having to be there when when employees are acting inappropriately with, with each other. I think there's a tremendous difference, and I think that I, I feel that that. There is that they're seen as too similar. They're seen as too similar of a level of offense when one is far worse than the other. One, I think, is just inappropriate workplace comment, uh, conduct, and the other one is is something that's bad and, and really shouldn't be happening. So the you know I, I I can imagine how these women feel when they have bosses that that try to make moves on them sexually 
when they have no interest in that sort of thing, but then they 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 they're afraid to do anything about it because that's their boss, and then he has a lot of control over where their career goes. And I, I can see where that is a very tough situation to be in, and I feel for the women who have been in that situation. And uh, you know, I, I personally would never do such a thing, uh, no matter what position I was in. Uh, but uh, so so that I, I totally understand the sexual harassment issue that occurs in workplaces and, and why this is so upsetting for women. I, I do think it's been stretched somewhat to where if some if two people are making out consensually at a work function, yeah, it's kind of obnoxious and you don't really want to see it. But does this qualify as sexual harassment? I, I, in my opinion, I don't think it does. But on the other hand, if you complain about it, say, hey, this person's acting inappropriately at work, and then it's someone who's above you, and then they start retaliating, then you've got a different situation where that's definitely a big problem. And, and uh, any kind of retaliation, especially firing after 21 years of the company without any kind of real cause, that's, uh, that's pretty bad. And, and I think, without knowing the details here, I think I probably believe most of this. I think probably most, of her, most or all of her allegations are true. Maybe some are... Uh, exaggerated slightly, but I think if, if we were to see the absolute truth here, it'd be fairly close to what this woman is claiming. And I think the fact that Caesars fired the guy is even more evidence of that. If this was just some BS claim she was making because she was doing crappy at her job and they fired her and she made this up as the reason, I don't think they'd be fired. I don't think they would be letting him go. And, and sometimes it does occur in corporate environments where top executives who Again, it's kind of a theme of the show, people who think that the rules don't apply to them. Uh, they don't want to... I, I can see how this kind of happened, too, because she makes the complaint, and they bring him in, and they're like, what? what's she saying? Well, yeah, you know, I'm going out with this girl, with, with one of the employees here, and yeah, we... So we probably kissed in front of her, and she's flipping out about this, and I've never, never been inappropriate with her directly. I've never made any sexual comments to her. She just didn't like seeing us making out, and she want, you know, she's she's out for blood now. Like, you know, they just, you know, come on, you guys, you're not going to fire me over this. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, it's not a big deal. So they they probably let this go, and then he was pissed and thought of what what are some passive aggressive ways I can screw her near for for this. <laughs> That's probably why she started being left off the thank you emails and not invited to meetings and, and not getting gifts. So like, like, okay, everybody, it's time for your holiday gifts for, for Christmas. And everybody, Oh, this is great. This is great. This is great. What did you get? I'm the only one in the whole office who got nothing. Wah, 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 wah. So I, I, I could picture this was type of thing was happening. And then he's kind of like laughing in the background. Like, like I can picture this type of thing happening and, and how frustrating it must've been. And so probably when Caesars, when, when a lawsuit came, then Caesars like, well, now, now we've got to figure out what's really happening here. Now we've got to see if this guy's going to cause further problems. And furthermore, uh, the lawsuit probably occurred uh, well after the whole Me Too movement started. So at that point, it's taken even more seriously. So like, I wonder if this guy is a liability. And they probably looked into it and saw that, yes, he was. And this is the last guy we want to have here and be the next Steve Wynn. So they uh, they got rid of him. So. This Kevin Ortsman is not uh, not with Caesars anymore, and he had a pretty high position, the regional director of Atlantic City, where they have uh, several properties. Uh, I'm looking on Google for things about him, and there's a lot of different stories about him being fired. But again, I I hadn't seen that much about it until uh, just recently when I was just kind of scrolling through 
various news stories about gambling and happened to run into this. He is 53 years old, according to the public records I have that show that he was born on uh, May 9th, 1966. And lives in New Jersey. And that's uh, that's all there is right now about this. We'll see where the lawsuit eventually goes. These things are sometimes slow. But you got to think it's going to be ruled in her favor and there's going to some kind of settlement if they're already firing the guy for what is probably related to the allegations. If you want to call in, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Well, since we talked about one lawsuit... But actually, let's, let's talk about something else before we get to the other lawsuit. We have two lawsuit stories in this, but uh, a new, another Caesar story. We've gone to another Caesar story about another executive at Caesars that might be in some trouble, and a, a much higher one than a regional director. Tom Reage, who is currently an executive for El Dorado Resorts, which, if you remember, bought Caesars, and they're going to make the merger of all their properties and their two companies final next year. Tom Reage is going to be the incoming CEO of that new company. So he is going to be the head of Caesars next year, or at least right now that's what's looking is going to happen, but uh, I guess it's possible that this could change it. Tom Reage has been hit with a subpoena by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, as part of a trading probe. He received the subpoena in May of 2019, and two other El Dorado board members and also one uh, El Dorado executive got the same subpoena, and this was over trading of a company called Iradimed, which makes MRIs. Now, you might wonder, what would this have to do with a gaming company? Why would they care about this company that makes MRIs? Well, the problem is that El Dorado board member James Hawkins, who, by the way, also got a subpoena, is a director of Iradimed. And there's some concern that there was some insider trading going on involving Tom Rage, those other two board members, Hawkins and this executive, because Hawkins is a director at Iradimed. Now, they have not notified Caesars of any kind of uh, allegation of wrongdoing, nor have they uh, told the uh, these executives, including Tom Reage, that they are being accused of wrongdoing. Right now, these are just subpoenas. And uh, right now, this situation is not listed as a... It's not listed as a risk that could stop this merger between the two companies. So before you think, oh, okay, good, this is going to stop the merger. No, it's not. It's, it's not. Uh, there is a 475-page filing that dealt with this matter, but uh, nothing is listed as this being a risk for the merger not going through. This seems to be just kind of a separate matter 
that they're looking into, the SEC is looking into involving insider trading for this uh, Iratimed company. Tom Reed and uh, Gary Carano, the other board member who uh, got the subpoena, will are, are both going to be at the new combined Caesars and El Dorado company next year. James Hawkins, the one who was the director of uh, of Iratimed, who was kind of the center of this whole thing, he was not planned to remain at uh, El Dorado Caesars anyway. He was going to, his position was going to be eliminated. The Eldorado president and uh, COO Anthony Carano, I'm not sure if he's related to Gary Carano, uh, also received a subpoena. So uh, we will see what happens with this situation. It is possible if it is found that uh, Tom Reage was involved in insider trading that the company could decide not to name him the CEO next year. So this this could actually affect Caesars a lot if a different CEO gets put in place than the one that they have planned to end up there next year. I'm guessing it won't. It seems like, from what we can see here, the allegations are not super strong. It's more of just a subpoena to find out some things. But maybe when they look into it further that uh, they'll have enough to start an insider trading case against them. And then I have to imagine Tom Reach would not be the CEO at that point. He might not even be allowed to be to run a public company. Yeah, that's true too. That's true. So we will watch what happens with that and report on further developments in that story. Moving on to another lawsuit-related topic. A lawsuit, a law firm is actually being sued. They're not suing. They're being sued by a Houston-area poker club, one of those kind of semi-legal, semi-illegal poker clubs. They are suing a law firm. Now, this is one of the clubs that got busted earlier this year. So it's kind of weird for them to be doing the suing. Now, you might think this may have to do with the representation that they were getting about uh, after the raid. No, this is a little bit different. The Prime Social Poker Club, which is in Houston, and it's one of uh, what they call day membership poker rooms, where you're basically buying a membership for the day instead of paying rake. That's the way they make money there that uh, they have sued uh, Jones-Walker LLP for supposedly helping lobby for what was uh, thought to be an ordinance that would actually make these rooms legal. Right now, these rooms are kind of in in purgatory, legal purgatory, to where it's not clear if they're legal or illegal. It's definitely illegal to collect a rake in Texas. It's definitely uh, illegal in a lot of ways to run these games. But then they're doing these loopholes where basically you're just joining a club and then for the day paying your membership fee. And then once you're in there, you're just playing home poker games with no rake, which are legal. 
Like if you have a home game and don't charge any rake, that's legal in Texas. If you charge rake, it's illegal. So they're saying, well, okay, what if you're just paying a membership to be part of a club and people just happen to want to play poker? That's 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 the legality they're standing behind, which is kind of violating the whole spirit of the law. The law allowing these home poker games is so people can play with their friends and not be busted for it, not not so card rooms can exist and, and just rake it a different way. So I, I understand why this is uh, these are getting raided and why there are some legal problems with these and why these card rooms just, they really want to just get on stable legal footing, just be legal and be done with the whole thing. So what Prime Social is claiming is that uh, Jones Walker LLP approached them and claimed that an ordinance was being considered in the city of Houston to formally legalize these social poker clubs, these these day membership clubs, that once and for all they were going to be made legal and that they're not going to get in trouble and they don't have to worry about getting in trouble. And Jones Walker wanted a lot of money to help uh, represent Prime Social and to help uh, push this ordinance through. Prime Social thought it was a good idea, and they paid a lot of money. So Prime Social paid to this uh, law firm... One million dollars. Not quite, but that's what they're suing for. But they paid $500,000 to Jones Walker. And then they found out the bad news. The bad news they found out was that this whole ordinance that was being considered by the city of Houston to legalize rooms like theirs never existed. That's a real kick in the ass when you pay a law firm to assist getting your poker room legalized according to a new ordinance that's being strongly considered by the city. And then you find out that this whole thing was never happening and they're just taking your money. That's kind of crappy, isn't it? Now, these are just allegations. This has not been proven in court yet. But the complaint that was filed says, as part of its pitch to Prime Social, Jones Walker represented to Prime Social representatives that it was working on an anticipated city of Houston ordinance for card rooms, such as the one operated by Prime Social. Jones Walker further advised Prime Social to hire its investigator, who would operate as part of the legal team assisting Prime Social in establishing the necessary protocols in order to obtain a license under the coming or anticipated ordinance. Based upon this representation, Prime Social paid significant sums to Jones Walker's investigator, including sums Jones Walker represented would cover the license fee under the coming or anticipated ordinance. As it turned out, there was no coming or anticipated ordinance, and there was no basis for Jones Walker to believe it was legitimate. Indeed, the anticipated ordinance turned out to be nothing more than an idea peddled by a separate client or acquaintance of the attorneys at Jones Walker and or their investigator. And in reality, it was never disclosed to Prime Social and which resulted in substantial damages being occurred by Prime Social. There is some suspicion that this uh, separate client or acquaintance that was mentioned at the end that was being peddled was actually political consultant uh, Amir Mireskandari, and he was actually fired from the Harris County DA's office uh, after this, uh, after these raids happened, and that uh, 
there is a, there's a lot of shady stuff involving this guy and things very similar to this where he seemed to claim that uh he was uh that they were going to get an ordinance passed and that he was getting uh, bribes from them to make this happen he was working as a quote consultant but in reality he had no power over this and this was never going to happen he was just saying hey you know if you can i i can get these ordinances passed for you if you could uh hire me as a consultant for a lot of money and i think they paid him like 250 grand when in reality there is no such thing happening so this seems like it might be related it doesn't specifically say that in the lawsuit but it might be related to this amir miriskandari situation and basically this lawsuit is saying that there was no ordinance there was nothing being considered by the Houston City Council and that uh, the only existence of anything to legalize it was this phony thing that uh, some other third party probably this Miraskandari guy was uh, claiming that would be a good idea to have done but that that was the only existence of anything that was referring to an ordinance and that uh, the law firm solicited all this expensive work when none of this was ever happening in the first place. Regarding the raids, I mentioned this before, the charges were dropped within a few weeks and the DA's office announced that there is a conflict of interest. And then the FBI is actually investigating the situation, including this... uh, Miraskandari character. So they also said in the lawsuit that uh, Jones Walker claimed that they were experts on gaming law and that it says uh, Jones Walker markets and maintains a gaming team of lawyers which represents his offering full spectrum legal dispute resolution and and government uh, relations and legislative advocacy services to clients in every sector of the gaming industry. These are the services that Prime Social anticipated receiving from Jones Walker. They claim this is misrepresentation because in reality they don't really have such expertise, nor do they really have a gaming team. And that uh, this entire thing was misrepresentation. The lawsuit itself claims misrepresentation, negligence, and breach of fiduciary duty. And they want actual imputative damages plus interests and court costs. Jones Walker has no comment. So it looks like <laughs> looks like there's a lot of scumbags just kind of trying to reach into the pockets of these card rooms that were existing in kind of a murky legal standing. First, some guy who was associated with the district attorney's office is uh, basically demanding bribes uh, under the guise of being a consultant about legalizing it when that wasn't really happening. <laughs> and there's these law, this law firm that apparently did something similar. That's uh, got to be frustrating for them. I've heard some bad things about these card clubs. Bad meaning not just terrible, but just that. Uh, the, the rake is insane. There's a lot of uh, kind of shady business practices at these clubs. A lot of people are unhappy with them. But you don't have any choice in Texas. Texas, despite 
being the name of uh, Hold'em, Texas Hold'em, and despite Texas having a lot of history with uh, poker to some degree, in, uh, the very old school poker, it really is behind the times with gambling. And there just isn't much gambling there. It's not one of these states with no gambling at all, like uh, Utah and Hawaii, but there really is very little considering the size of the state. It is the, I believe, third most populous state behind California and New York. And it's it's very hard to do any kind of uh, legalized gambling there. That's why they people will travel to neighboring states. People in the Dallas area will go to the Oklahoma border. People in the Houston area will go to the Louisiana border. That's that's typically where you play if you live in Texas. There are underground clubs. Then there's these membership-type clubs like this, which are not quite underground. And the Texas-based poker players you've seen rise up and become good, these are people who have probably played at these type of clubs. That's where they had to learn to play. Now, some of them eventually moved to Vegas or to other places where you can play in regular card rooms. And a lot of them moved to online, played online. But most of these Texas players who started from there were ones who played in underground clubs or these membership-type rooms. Chantel McNulty, another female who kind of threw herself into the poker scene, in the 2000s. That's where she originated. Where she was actually a hostess at one of these underground clubs. And then she got into poker herself. So we'll see where that lawsuit goes. That's pretty crappy. <laughs> now, it is possible that this law firm really believed that an ordinance was under consideration, maybe they heard through this uh, Miris Kandari guy, and maybe they believe that guy's BS, and they're like, okay, well, we gotta, we got to get in on this. we got to position ourselves to get in on this. And then they gave some exaggerated pitch to Prime Social, still kind of really believing something was in the works, and figured it all worked itself out, that eventually, even though they weren't, may not have really been the gaming experts they claimed to be, that, that uh, eventually, since there was an ordinance they heard was being considered that they were going to be on the ground floor of, of helping Prime Social be part of that whole thing and become legalized. And then once that all happened, then Prime Social will be happy and feel money well spent and everyone would, would, would walk away satisfied. And, and maybe they only found out later that this whole thing was BS and <laughs> that this uh, uh, Amir Miraskandari was lying about the whole thing. So it's possible that they were kind of duped as well, but tried to piggyback on it and make money and then the whole thing backfired. Though it's it's very possible that they knew a lot of this was BS or just speculative and promoted it as something else. Sadly, there are a lot of shady attorneys out there. A lot of shady attorneys. Not, not Eric Bensamokin, who, who uh, donated to our free roll tonight, but uh, there are I'm a lot... Giving Eric, people like Eric, a bad name. They, they do. They, they do. I, I've actually, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've talked to Eric uh, about some of the cases that he's worked, and it's uh, interesting stories. That uh, And in a lot of these stories, it sounds like you know, the, the people that he's suing are, are it sounds like 
bad people that that's, uh, justice is being served when when he sues them and wins. Uh, but but there are scumbag attorneys out there who will try to find any way they can to make money and will violate all kinds of uh, ethics to do it. And sometimes will really sound like they know what they're talking about and really sound like everything is on the up and up when it's really not. And I saw something similar to this in the radio industry. And uh, I don't believe this ever went to court either. This is kind of an interesting story. And I'm not going to name any names here. But, uh, and by the way, everything I've said here, I'm I'm just going by uh, news reports about the matter. I haven't looked into any of this myself. I don't know if this Jones Walker is guilty of what uh, Prime Social is alleging or not. So I just wanted to get that out there. I'm just going by what Prime Social is alleging here and and this lawsuit that is currently in progress. But honestly, I don't know about it any more than that. But anyway, getting back to what happened in the story that I know about in the radio industry, a there was a Los Angeles area radio personality who was very big in the 80s and early 90s whose career fell upon hard, hard times and for the next two decades was uh, basically unable to get hired for various reasons I won't go into. And this guy was really, really, really itching to get back on top. But as you might guess, in those 20 years, he was getting a lot older, too. So this guy who was uh, in his late 50s at the time, this uh, former radio uh, DJ and talk show host, he was he and a an owner of a small station in Southern California, a small station with a very weak signal. They partnered to start what they wanted to be a syndicated show, and at first it seemed like a good idea. Just get him onto syndicated radio, which is where you produce a show and then it airs on a whole lot of different small radio stations around the country. Sometimes even not small. Sometimes bigger radio stations too. But syndicated shows are not produced for a local market. They're produced for basically the entire country and whoever wants to buy it. And then with syndicated shows, there's the amount of compensation that the host and producer get has to do with the size of the stations carrying it, the number of stations they can pick up. And and also the you know the, the ads that can be sold for it, and then there's a matter of who gets the ad money. Is it the local station? Is it the syndicate? Is it the producer of the syndicated content? They have to hammer all this out. There's there's agreements they come to about this. Syndicated shows are actually good for small market stations because they can't afford to hire on-air staff 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They just there's no way they could support it. So they'll they'll buy these syndicated shows very cheaply, much cheaper than they'd be paying a local host to do the same show. And sometimes they will even get these syndicated shows for free or extremely cheap. Why would it be free? Well, in some, in some cases they will carry the show for free, and the way they'll make the money is they'll run ads on it. And then the way the, the one who is producing the show makes the money is that they also have their own ads on it. So there's space for local ads, there's space for uh, national ads, and then they they all make money for it. And this way, the local market gets a show that they don't have to pay for or they have to pay very little for, and yet they've got content for their local listeners. So there's a lot of syndicated shows in smaller markets, 
and have been for, for decades. This is not a new thing. But in the early 2010s, this uh, particular host I'm talking about, former big L.A. DJ and talk show host who had fallen on hard times, uh, he was trying to get a syndicated show going. And his plan was to move to New York, where he wasn't as well known, and kind of start over there so he could leave behind all his demons and problems and drama and do a syndicated show out of New York. And the guy at the small station in Southern California, which was going to be one of the affiliates, that guy was a combination of bankrolling it and also he had a relationship with a syndicator because that's the hardest part. Like a, You may ask, well, why don't I do a syndicated show? Why don't I make Poker Fraud Alert Radio a syndicated show? Maybe a shorter version. No one's going to want to carry a five-hour, six-hour show. But why don't I make like an hour version of the show where I syndicate it and make money that way and get stations to carry this for free? And we split the ad revenue. Why, why don't I do something like that? And you know, maybe 58 minutes would be the intro and two would be the content, but it would still be a syndicated show, something like that. <laughs> so the, the reason this is hard to do is it's tough to find a syndicator to carry your show. You can't just call up a syndicator and say, hey, would you like my show? Like it's, it's, it's tough to get yourself established to the point where the syndicators want to carry it. There's a lot more shows that want syndication than there are syndicators that can carry your show. So this guy at the small station in Southern California had an in to a syndicator that he was using for his own station, and he convinced them to take a shot with this new show. So, so far, so good. So they're all ready to go, or not ready to go, but they're all ready to start developing the whole thing. And then they hit their first snag. They were looking for further investors into the show because the... They, they were thinking this is probably going to need more money behind it than that owner of that small station wanted to invest. So they were soliciting investors. And then a lawyer contacted them from New York and said, whoa, 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 what do you think you're doing here? You shouldn't be doing this. This is, uh, this, this is complicated uh, legal stuff you're doing here. You can't, just, uh, you can't sell shares of, this, of the ownership of this. And you can't, uh, there's a lot of things you're doing wrong here. You need legal guidance to sell portions of this program if that's what you're trying to do so they said okay yeah that makes sense so he said okay well hire me i'm an expert with this and i will get this all legal and he says okay he says, i'll prepare a document for you that uh that fully explains all the le- legalities surrounding this and that uh, anyone who's going to sign up is it will have to go through and will have to sign and and this way you'll be you'll be totally above board okay Go ahead. We, we hire you. So they, they, they hired that lawyer. Well, the bills start rolling in for lots and lots of money. And they're kind of scratching their heads like, how's this happening? We thought this guy's going to just kind of quickly go through the document that they wrote up themselves as far as investing in the show and, and make it legal. But this guy's just doing work after work after work and just billing them insane amounts of money. Well, eventually the document exceeded 100 pages and they were said to owe about $150,000 to this lawyer. <laughs> for, for a show that never got off the ground, that hadn't started yet. A, a small syndicated show that they were just trying to solicit 
extra investment money into, which they never got, by the way. Nobody else invested into it. But they, they're soliciting extra investment money, and, and a lawyer says, hey, let me make this legal for you. Okay. And then the guy just works and works and works, and every time they ask him, is the document ready? No, 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 no. We've got to do it more. We've got to make it complete. And he just kept writing and writing and writing because he, he, he saw he had uh, ignoramuses on the other end who didn't realize they were being had. So finally, when, when the bill racked up to like 150 k they said, okay, look, uh, you're screwing us here. We see what's going on. We're not paying you now. So I, I, I think a lot of money had already been paid, but they still owed some money. And they basically gave him the middle finger and said, we're not paying you any further and, and give us a refund. We, you scammed us. And the lawyers told him, F you. We didn't scam, I didn't scam you. I did exactly what you asked me to do. You wanted a document to make your whole investment uh, in your syndicated show legal, and that's what I was making for you. And it's not my fault that you didn't want it to be this uh, this detailed and this long. Uh, I was doing what I felt was correct, and, and uh, you didn't stop me, and and, uh, and now you're stopping me not wanting to pay me for it. And so, so I think both sides ended up walking away. I don't believe there was ever a lawsuit. I think they, they just lost a lot of money. Like Most of the money they were going to put into that show got wasted on this lawyer and his silly 120-page document. No one ever invested in the show. They shot off all the money they had on that lawyer. And then basically they were screwed for this new show. They couldn't afford a studio. They couldn't afford new equipment. They, they, they couldn't afford anything. And, and it was a super low-budget piece of crap that nobody wanted. And after about a month, they gave up on it and shut it down. So believe me, when this lawyer approached them, and so oh, let me make this legal for you. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew he had idiots on the hook who didn't uh, understand the process and didn't understand when it would get excessive or how much work would get excessive. And they, they, he knew he was running into two rubes who had never done this before and that he was going to just keep racking up the bills as long as they're going to keep paying and seeing how far he could take it and see how far he could squeeze them. At no point do I believe this attorney ever believed that he was ever really uh, – doing this work in good faith or doing what was really necessary to be done. But, but there's lawyers like that. And I've known of many other lawyers who have purposely run up their bills in various ways and, and tried to stretch out cases as long as they can, as long as they're being paid by the hour, uh, simply to just get more money. So there's, there's a lot of unscrupulous lawyers out there, and you, you have to watch out when you hire one. And, and yeah, and I think the best thing you can do when you hire lawyers early, because you know certainly it's happened to me a few times during my career, get just give me an amount for a project or for the contract. That's what they should have done. Yeah, that, to write it out for two thousand yeah. dollars or something. Yeah, right, right. They should not that complex. Right, this is something relatively simple that they should have exactly like exactly what they should have done. This wasn't that complicated. That this is it'd be okay. Well, how much can you do this for? Okay, produce it. Uh, for this flat fee, and then when the guy makes it, then you you pay him. You know, that's the, that's what you do. You don't, uh, or even if they have to pay in advance, fine. But but uh, but something which is flat that they're aware the charge is going to be. Not that he can just keep writing and writing and writing and just billing them endlessly, which is what his plan was. I mean, I wonder how far he would have gone with this if if they didn't stop him. Like, would he've written a thousand page document? Would have been ten thousand pages? Like, what if they just kept paying him? Would he just at, at what point would he said it's done? I don't know if ever he would have said it was done. So you have to watch out for things like that, and especially when you're when you're hiring an attorney who's who's charging by the hour, which in most cases is what happens. You 
you, you do have to – it is probably in your best interest to try to see if they will do something for the job, especially if it doesn't involve litigation. And and if they won't, then you've, you've got to keep close tabs on how much money is being billed to you and how much work is being done, how much work really needs to be done. And also you may want to look online at the lawyer hiring on uh, – Avo.com and other places see if there's complaints about them, even on Yelp. If there's a lot of complaints about your lawyer being shady, he's probably shady. (laughs) There are people who complain just because the case doesn't go the way they wanted and then they think the lawyer was incompetent when in reality their case just sucked. So that that happens too. So there are lawyers who get bad reviews that are not deserved. But if you're seeing that most of the reviews are bad about a certain attorney, then that's a problem. So that's something to keep in mind as well. That's... uh, but I, I see with Prime Social how this thing could have happened because they were never completely legal and they were just so itching to become legal that anyone who seemed to be floating that idea to them, like, hey, help me out here, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Even if it seems a little bit shady, they're like, well, maybe this is what we've got to do to get it done because they were in a weird position in the first place legally. This is different than a typical thing you're hi- you'll hire an attorney for or a consultant for when you're a, a card room that's may or may not be legal and someone saying, hey, you know, I can pull some strings, but you're going to have to hire me as a, quote, consultant to make it happen. You're like, well, okay, it sounds like a bribe, but that may be just the way it works around here. Okay, fine. And then you find out the person was BSing you and you're furious. So this really opens them up to get taken advantage of. And that's what it looks like has happened uh, possibly in two cases. So it's, it's a mess there. They they just need to they really do need to license and regulate the poker rooms there in in Houston and be done with this. This this is what happens when you've got a situation like this where it's not completely legal, not completely illegal. All this type of crap happens. This is not surprising what's occurred here. So maybe at some point they'll they'll do this and then. The poker scene there can be a lot better. I'm looking at an article here from July 29th that this uh, uh, that that the consultant this what's his name now? I'm forgetting that I just looked at it. Mir Skadari, whatever it is that he 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 was denying that that he was corrupt here. That he was scamming anyone. But uh, we talked about this on the show back in July, I believe. And this also involved the Prime Social Club, by the way, involving this uh, uh, Amir Amir Iskandari. But they, the way he got them to pay was he had them donate. Uh, a lot of money to a political action committee that he used to support Democratic candidates in the 2018 election. <laughs> and I think he also got, he also was paid $10,000 himself for this whole thing per month for quite some time. So basically he was, uh, I guess he's, claim- this really does seem to tie in the other case now that I'm looking at it. Because he claimed that in 2018 he was paid 10000 a month by a private investigator to draft a city ordinance. And uh, 
that he was paid 120k in total, and that uh, he was trying to build a relationship through these uh, political action committees he was donating to and d- directing the club to donate to. That's his part of the, his side of the story, and the Prime Social Club side was that uh, basically he was making all this up and that there there he really had no pull here and that there was not going to be any ordinance and so it's, it sounds like it's all connected. So it's uh, and then it says here that he and another lawyer approached the club and asked for two hundred fifty thousand dollars to get it passed. This really sounds like it's all the, it's all the same stuff. It's got to be. Well, that is almost the end of the show. I was about to say it's the end of the show. It's not the end of the show. There's one more topic. Trader Risk, are you still with us? Before we get to the last topic, I'm going to look at our texts at 775-372-8355. Something I've neglected to do here. Uh, the 410, is it true that Kessler got Justin Hammer fired for calling him an idiot on Twitter after Kessler insulted him? I haven't heard about this. There was a flap on Twitter. In fact, I even commented a little about it. Uh, Justin Hammer is uh, an employee of Commerce who... Uh, is a uh, a card room I think he may be the card room manager there. I know that when they run tournaments at Commerce, it's uh they're run by Justin Hammer and uh and Matt Savage. But uh I believe that uh Hammer is the actual one who's the Commerce employee. I think he is the card room manager. But uh he and Kessler had an argument and I I think Hammer was in the right here. This all started because I, I was thinking of covering the Kessler thing on the show, and then I decided it wasn't worth it because it turned out to be a story about nothing. The, the problem with Kessler is like he'll bring up very good things sometimes that poker rooms are doing wrong, and he's the one speaking out, and then he, he really has gotten a lot of things changed that are crappy and that are bad for players or players are being screwed. And he has a, a pretty good following, and he's known to do this, and uh, he, he is kind of a watchdog in this way in, the, in tournament poker. So... And he and he doesn't do any of this selfishly. He really does all this just just because he thinks it's right. So that's the good side of Kessler. The bad thing is sometimes he jumps on things that are actually non-stories and the organization's not doing anything wrong. And and I kind of went down that road with him stupidly about I think it was about two years ago. He had these accusations about uh, what was it? I, I don't remember. It was one of these poker tours or something. I forgot what it was now. But some company that was doing some kind of poker tour. And the company had a pretty good reputation. And then Kessler made these allegations about them and about uh, something about their cruises. Whatever it was, at first there seemed to be something to it. And I backed him and I was kind of aggressively asking questions to this this, uh, poker tour. And I thought he, he really had something there. And then it turned out when all the details came forward that they were totally fine. They hadn't done anything wrong. And in fact, Kessler had kind of misrepresented some of the complaints. He wasn't like outright lying, but there were some things that Kessler was confused about and that he was overly suspicious about. And I just took it face value. And then once once they answered, it, it, it all made sense and that they weren't doing anything wrong. So I was kind of annoyed because I kind of attached myself to it. And then I very quickly detached myself from it once I saw that Kessler wasn't right there. And he really took it 
took it up the ass on that one. Like everybody on social media attacked him over that. I, fortunately, I I escaped attack because I backed off very quickly and apologized and said that uh, you know it appeared this way from from the way it was framed to me, but that now that I I've seen their answers, it looks good and uh, um you know thank you for your response, whatever. So they I I escaped most of the criticism, but. I've, and I've seen a few other things where Kessler complains about something, and I go, no, no, this looks fine to me. But there's been many other times where he complains, and I go, yeah, 100%, you're right. And yeah, this card room is shady, and yeah, they are screwing players, and you know, thanks for bringing this up. So this was one where, again, Kessler wasn't in the right, in my opinion. He claimed that Commerce ran a guaranteed tournament, a 250K guaranteed tournament, and then when they didn't collect 250K in buy-ins, that what they did was take money that was earmarked for the staff, you know, like the auto tip, that they basically took the auto tip and, and satisfied the overlay that way. And then they threw in a little of their extra money. But a lot of it came from the, the auto tip that goes to the dealers and staff. And I'm thinking, well, if, the, if this is true, it's crappy. They should, they shouldn't, the card room should not be satisfying the overlay that way. If they, if they don't collect enough money to meet the guarantee, the card room should just put the money in. They shouldn't say, well, well, we did collect this for the staff. And also, well, okay, if they didn't meet the guarantee. We're taking that. Like that, that's totally wrong if they're doing that. And then some people are responding, well, the staff gets paid either way. I go, no, that's fine if the staff gets paid, but they're not getting paid as much as they should. I'm not saying they're getting zero, but if the staff, if you're really taking money from them because they're not meeting the guarantee, that's a problem to me. Anything you collect for the staff should go to the staff. Anything that fails to meet the guarantee, you guys need to cover. Well, uh, Justin Hammer then clarified with very specific numbers that showed that they didn't take from the staff, that they contributed their own money to to make the guarantee from Commerce. So, okay, non-story. Commerce did the right thing. There's there nothing to complain about here. Unfortunately, in the whole exchange between Hammer and, and Kessler, there were some names being called. And uh, Kessler was very unhappy about that, that, that a representative of Commerce was, was calling him names like this and was demanding an apology. And, and, and Justin Hammer was feeling, hey, you know, you're, you're accusing us of doing something we didn't do. Uh, and you were rude to us first. So, like, like, I, I didn't watch it that closely. I can't even tell you who's right as far as the name-calling aspect of it. But this person in the 410 is saying that they heard something about Justin Hammer getting fired because of what he typed to Kessler. Now I'm very curious about this. I, I've always had a good relationship with, with uh, Justin Hammer and, and Matt Savage, and both of them know about this show and like this show. There was even a suggestion at one point. I, I didn't end up doing it, but there was a suggestion that I should even uh, do a, a Poker Fraud Alert radio from the LAPC. Maybe I'll do it next year. There was actually a suggestion I do that. Uh, and, and, and you know, and I, I said hello to both of them last year when I p- played the LAPC, and we got we get along very well. So I have... And, and Kessler I personally like. I, I see his faults, but I personally like Kessler, so... I don't like to see those two fight, but uh, uh, let me see here. I, I, I doubt Justin Hammer got fired. I mean, he's pretty well regarded. So even if he, even if they told him, don't type this type of stuff on social media, I can't see them firing him for this. If he worked for Caesars, for sure he wouldn't be fired. <laughs> You've seen what some of these uh, Caesars employers have uh, have done. Let's see. 
of Justin Hammer's Twitter. Um, well, it will say... Okay, it, it does say... I've got to figure this out now. See, this would be a good thing to have figured out before the show. His official link that he has as his website, and this could be a joke, but it's a USA.gov slash unemployment. <laughs> okay. Um, no, this looks serious. L.A. players, this is... Uh, now, it's possible he just left there on his own, but yeah. L.A. players, it was a privilege serving you over the years, but my time at Commerce Casino has come to a close. Thank you for all your support, encouragement, and kind words. Hashtag on to the next one. Hashtag time's up. Hashtag NGNF. I don't know what that stands for. Hmm. Weird. So then someone said back, I think a Poker Fraudler listener, in fact, a GJ, DJ McKinnon said back, I see what you did, Alan Kessler? And Alan said, come on, I'm sure I had nothing to do with this. So it's 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 possible that he just left or was fired for uh without good reason or for a stupid reason. I don't know. It's weird. He didn't say what he's moving on to do. So I wonder if this could be really could be a firing. The players responding to this are not happy. The players Responding now, these are people who are following him, so they're probably more likely to be pro Justin Hammer than anti Justin Hammer. But I will say that I, I'm not seeing a bad comment about him here. Even Kessler didn't say anything bad. And here, here, here's confirmation he's leaving. He said, "I'm always kidding about something, but this is actually happening for real. This part, that part's not the joke. Thank you for the kind words." This is then he posted a "This is not a drill gif," and then he posted a. Uh, he said, "There will be answers." And then put a coming soon gif. I mean, I hope that thing with Kessler didn't get him fired. Someone said, uh, this is awful. Hard to believe the timing isn't a coincidence. Well, there's going to be a lot of anger directed at Kessler if this is what got him fired. A lot of anger. Though right now it's not known if uh, that had to do with it or if... uh, This is just a coincidence that he had this flap with Kessler there and then gets fired. Um, Yeah, so, I don't know. Don't know, it's a little bit weird. Uh, it could even be things like they had too many overlays and they just weren't happy with it. I don't know. I don't know what to say here. That's too bad, though. Uh, I did like the fact that uh, that I had a good relationship with with him and with Matt Savage, and you know, with well, I go to Commerce sometimes. I play some tournaments there. Play cash a lot there. You know, it's it was nice to have a good relationship with the powers that be there and uh, now one of them is gone 
well. I guess we'll hear about this maybe shortly. Maybe we won't. Interesting topic, though. Uh, I guess that's it. Someone sent a, uh, a screenshot of themselves. Uh, it was Ballhawk Net. A screenshot of him playing the free roll. And he got it all in with aces against Gookie Heimowitz's deuces. And a deuce hit the turn. And that was that. So, <laughs> so, so Gookie was the uh, winner of that one. And they almost had the same stacks. Gookie had uh, 100 more than Ballhawk had. And I got uh, sent a screenshot of that. Well, uh, let me get to the last topic. About the DC sports betting situation. This is this is really weird. This is really weird. And uh, it does sound like a lot of corruption. But let me tell you the story. Because it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty uh, screwed up. So basically, uh, Washington, D.C., was supposed to have legalized sports betting fully operational by the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020. But uh, a problem has come up. D.C. Councilman-at-Large Robert White is now very concerned about a Washington Post investigation. And what this investigation showed is that... uh, The company that was supposed to be subcontracted to establish the sports betting does not exist at all. You may say, well, how does that make any sense? How how can a company that's non-existent do work? I'm glad you asked. Trader Risky probably isn't that glad. He just hung up. But (laughs) there's a Greek company called Intralot. And they received a $215 million no-bid contract from D.C., from the city of D.C., to continue running its lottery and also to run their the, the sports betting from that city, from D.C. However, in order to get awarded that contract the city of D.C. demanded that at least 51% of the work would have to be done by a local firm because this is a Greek company. And D.C. basically said, look, you know, you guys uh, you guys have been running our lottery and doing a pretty good job, but we're bringing sports betting in. It's, it's a big deal. And we want a contract of this size to go at least somewhat to the local community. So you guys can have your $250 million contract, but at least half the work, more than half the work, it has to be, it can't even be half the work, it's got to be more than half the work, has to be performed by a local firm. So you guys find a firm in D.C. and hire them to do more than half the work or you don't get this contract. And Interlot said, okay, deal. We will find a local firm to hire to do the work. So they hired Veteran Services Corp and 
Veteran Services Corp. Their contract says that they will perform the entire subcontract with its own organization and resources. So Veterans Services was actually going to do everything that was on that subcontract. I'm not sure what percentage of the total work it is, but more than half. So more than half the work to run the sports betting in the state and the lottery, for that matter, were to be done by this Veteran Services, which is based in D.C. One little problem, though. Veteran Services Corp. does not exist. According to the Washington Post investigation, it appears to have no employees. And the company website listed executives who didn't really work there. The one person that runs the company, Emmanuel Bailey, he lives in Maryland, not in D.C. Maryland is near D.C., but it's not D.C., and he is actually employed by Intralot. <laughs> Isn't that suspicious that they hired a, quote, local company that's actually owned by a man in Maryland who works for them, and the company has no employees, and all the executives listed on the website were fake? That is not good. Then, Interlot, in response to the Washington Post's investigation, Interlot said that the new contract, uh, the work will be performed by DC09. But the other problem is that DC09 was formed by Interlot about 10 years ago. So this is all the, basically the same company. In fact, Veteran Services uh, and DC09 are basically all Interlot. So Interlot's excuse is that Veteran Services, you know, the company with no employees, owns 51% of DC09. <laughs> <laughs> and it's responsible for 51% of DC09's work. If this is seeming complicated... It is. It's all BS. However, it does seem that Intralot actually funded DC09's creation, guaranteed the lease for their office, and they control the company. So basically, DC09 looks like it is Intralot, and Veteran Services, which supposedly owns 51% of DC09, also is Intralot. So the whole thing is Intralot. That's, a, that's, what is, that's basically what the Washington Post investigation says. Uh, that that uh, Intralot, a Greek company that was told they have to subcontract out more than half the work if they get this $250 million contract, subcontracted to themselves. They're paying themselves. So th- this is a big problem. And uh, there's clearly corruption going on here. And... There's some concern that this was a no-bid contract in the first place. The District of Columbia's CFO, Jeffrey DeWitt, wrote to the Washington Post, The district sports wagering contract is the only one in the U.S. to date that mandates 35% local and minority business participation. Uh, but, but still, that doesn't matter if, if that's not really happening. Um, apparently Interlot attempted to run Maryland's lottery and Maryland did not let them. 
Maryland said that, uh, or their lottery director, Gordon Mendeniga, said that he recommended against it and that the structure of Interlot kept changing on them. He said, we asked them several times who would be responsible for what. Interlot presented us with a lot of suggestions that they would be responsible for everything. So you can read this article in the Washington Post. You just Google Interlot DC sports betting and a Washington Post article will come up. And there's a lot of details here I won't bother getting into. But uh, at the moment, the whole thing is on hold because there's a lot of concern that this whole thing is BS and that there's corruption involved here and that this is failing to meet that requirement. So, uh, there's not going to be sports betting in D.C. until this whole thing is fixed, until they figure out what's going on here. There's a lot of concern that uh, this is a result of corruption and that there is no local business working on this lottery and that it's all this, it's all this Greek company. Jeffrey DeWitt, the CFO, is on the hot seat also. The councilman, Robert White, that I mentioned earlier, is demanding to know why DeWitt's office recommended this uh, this contract in the first place and what information they used to make the decision. There's, there's concern that maybe there's corruption, corruption in DeWitt's office and that maybe some rather uh, unsavory factors took place to make that happen. Council member at large Alyssa Silverman has asked the Attorney General of D.C., Carl Racine, if they can void or revisit the contract given this development. And they're still looking into that. So the whole thing is is kind of stalled at the moment while they figure all this out. I don't think Interlot's going to be able to convince them that the work's being done locally. I mean, it just seems like a lot of double talk. If you read the Washington Post article, they were like, well, no, no, because we own this part of, of – of, uh, I mean, Veteran Services owns 51% of this, and we have this relationship with Veteran Services, and they're just, they're just dancing around it without directly pointing to how it is a local firm hiring local employees to do local work. Like they're just not being clear about it because probably they've been caught with their hand at the cookie jar and there is no way to explain it. So they're just kind of hoping probably it'll go away or they can double talk their way out of it. Uh, There is in general a lot of corruption in city government. Now, admittedly, D.C. is a large city and there's extra focus on it sometimes because it is the nation's capital, though it's important to understand, especially if you're not from the U.S., that the city of District Columbia is not the U.S. government. It's... The District of Columbia is not in any state in the U.S. It's its own city that's not part of any state. And its uh, city government is kind of like the state legislature since there is no state. But uh, that's just the government for the local area. 
just because it's in D.C., that's not the federal government. The federal government is in D.C., but there's a separate local government for D.C., and that's what we're dealing with here. But in general, there's a lot of corruption in city government, a lot of bribes in city government, a lot of contracts that are handed out, lucrative contracts handed out by city governments that are not what they appear to be or are handed out as a result of bribery or there's massive kickbacks from these contracts that are overpriced. I've seen so many corrupt things at the city level in cities I've lived in over time that it's mind-boggling. And the reason this happens is because uh, the less oversight there is over a government entity, the less visibility there is, the less interest there is by the public, the more they can get away with. The fewer people that are watching, the more you can get away with. I'd like to say I have a theory about government, which I call Druff's Law of Government, which is the smaller the government body is, the more corrupt it tends to be. Which people tend to think is the opposite. People think like the federal government's most corrupt, state government's second most corrupt, city government's third most corrupt. No, it's, I think it's the opposite. Because wherever there's the most scrutiny placed upon, that's where they have to act the most legitimately. The least amount of scrutiny, then they don't have to. And that's why even pseudo-government entities like homeowners associations are full of corruption because there's barely anyone watching. There's barely anyone who cares. The typical HOA has a few people who are running the whole thing and everybody else just kind of pays their dues and shrugs their shoulders. They don't have time or, or the interest to look into where the money's really going. And no one outside that little area of the, with the HOA representing is going to care about that particular HOA. So that's how they get away with it. And so then you go up from there to city government, again, kind of the same thing, county government, kind of the same thing. So, you know, the local governments are, are notoriously corrupt. And a lot of times there's just direct bribery or kickback schemes where they just assume it won't be caught. So that could be what's going on here. It could be that everyone involved here, not everybody, but the, the ones involved in handing out this contract, we're very aware that Interlot was not really going to be handing out the local contract, but was going to pretend they were, and, and they looked the other way. Or it's possible that they just didn't ask for any proof. They just said, okay, you're, you're going to hire a local company, right? Oh, yeah, we're hiring a veteran's, uh, veteran services. Are they local? Yes. Okay, good enough for us. It could have been something like that. We're just, they intentionally keep their heads in the sand. Willful ignorance. So it's something like that, in all likelihood. There's just so much corruption in city government. I, I bet your city government has a lot of corruption you're not aware of. I think I've mentioned it before on the show. I've, I've dealt with corruption in the L.A. County government. I had to assist someone with their business when they were away. And uh, they had a situation where uh, a person died in uh, one of their rental units. And the person was not discovered having passed away for quite some time and actually decomposed and created a toxic situation there. 
So they had to do certain things through the county government to get all that cleared. They had to notify the county. The county had to come down. They, they There had to be uh, a, uh, an approved cleaning process involved and all of that. Well, I can tell you from dealing with the county government that there was all kinds of corruption there. And the first thing they tried to do was direct me to talking to these toxic cleanup services that were way, way, way overpriced and that the city go- that the county government pushed you towards using and that once you got these people on the phone, they kept just pushing you, pushing you, pushing you to do an insurance claim at where they were going to massively overbill the insurance. And I kept saying, no, no, no. I, we, you know, the person I'm... Uh, working with here does not want an insurance claim and they kept pushing me oh come on it'll be fine you need insurance it, it was such an obvious scam it was such a thing where there was a clearly a matter where the where people at the county government were being bribed to push people to use these toxic cleanup services which were then going to overcharge the insurance and uh, everybody makes out great except for the business that has to pay it I then looked into it further and found the website of one guy who was uh, pretty much the one non-corrupt toxic cleanup guy in the area. And he had all over his website these crazy rambling essays about all the corruption in L.A. County involving this matter. Pretty much exactly what I suspected. He had already written out on his website years ago these crazy-looking rants. And if you didn't know it was really going on, you'd read this thing and go, I'm not hiring this guy. He's a nutcase because it wasn't laid out well. The, the, the website was poorly designed. Uh, his expose of it was just very rambling and hard to follow. It looked like it really looked like the rant of the crazy person. And the only reason I considered hiring this guy is because I had observed this myself and suspected this myself. And I go, I bet he's right. I bet he's like the only one who's not doing this here. And he's pissed that he's losing all the business because the county is pushing everyone to use everyone else. Because I, I came to these conclusions myself independently, and then I read his site, and I go, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. So I talked to him, and and on the phone, he was uh, much more normal than he was on the website. He was a little bit quirky and weird himself, but I guess when someone who cleans up dead people, uh, you know, it's, you might be a little bit weird. But after talking to him, I was convinced that everything he said was 100% true. And so I recommended to the people I was helping there to hire him. They did. They hired him for a, a fraction of the rate that these uh, other companies that were recommended strongly by the county wanted to charge, and uh, he did a good job. And eventually it got approved, and uh, that was that. And uh, there were some other stories that occurred from this as well, but I won't bother going into them. But I, I thought, Wow. This county office definitely, I mean, I don't have proof, but it really looked like they were definitely, they were taking bribes from these toxic cleanup companies to uh, direct the business to them, who then would try to push people to insurance claims and then would just make out huge. They'd be doing a thousand dollar job and charging 12,000 for it. So it was very eye-opening, 
very eye-opening. Even this L.A. County, this this very large county with all these people, that these sub-offices within L.A. County were, were so corrupt. And that the one guy trying to speak out about it, the one who's really getting screwed by it, someone who, one of the few working in that industry there who wasn't dishonest and wasn't in cahoots of the whole thing, uh, he, he was falling upon deaf ears, and he was really, really frustrated. Didn't help that he couldn't coherently put a website together that didn't look like a crazy person's website, but, you know, it. he was right from everything I could see. And I, I've also read so many different stories in different newspapers about different, you know, in different cities I've lived in. I subscribe to the local newspaper, and so many times I see all these pretty damning stories about bad stuff in city government. So when I see something like this out of D.C., I go, yeah, doesn't surprise me at all. Does not surprise me at all. And there's many ways that this can be done to where there's plausible deniability or it's very hard to prosecute. It's, a lot of times it's very hard to even do anything about this stuff. Sometimes they can prove that people receive direct bribes to then do the work. And then also sometimes there's just cluelessness. Also sometimes there's nothing that's malicious on the part of the uh, people who are working for the government, but they, they just don't understand what they're paying for and don't ask too many questions because it's public money. One of the best-known examples of this in recent times was the Obamacare website that $560 million went into and basically didn't work. It was way, 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 way overpriced, and it was done very poorly. Even if it hadn't been overpriced, it would would have been a terrible deal because it just wasn't done right, and it couldn't handle the traffic, and it was crashing, and it was a disaster. And the company that had worked on it wasn't even an American company, and the company had a very, very terrible reputation prior to this job. But somehow the federal government handed out a $560 million contract for it. Now, yes, this was federal government. This is kind of going against what I said about the local governments being more corrupt, but it was just on a larger scale there because the federal government has more money. But I've seen a lot of these too, where governments hire contractors to do things and they don't understand what they're really paying for. This especially happens in tech-related stuff because uh, if, if you're not technical at all, you don't understand what a job should cost or, or how big of a job something is. And something that could seem like a huge job could, can actually be pretty simple and then you can get gouged big time. So I've seen sometimes what some of these cities have paid, some of these small cities have paid for like maintaining their computer network and they're paying like millions of dollars. I'm going, what are you guys doing? This, this, you could hire someone for a very small fraction of this and do just as good of a job. Like I, I've seen things like this that get exposed eventually, but there's people who approve it. Oh yeah, yeah, two million dollars to maintain a small network in a small city. Okay, sounds good. So if you ever run into something in your local government that you think there's corruption involved, uh, there often is. There ever seems like they have some kind of strange relationship with a contractor that's doing some work for the city or the county. You see odd things happening. Seems like uh, your complaints fall upon deaf ears about things. It's, it's often because there's uh, some kind of kickbacks involved and they've got a I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine relationship. 
And sometimes this is justified because uh, sometimes these officials who are elected and don't get that big of a, uh, a salary, or in some cases it's the voluntary, voluntary positions, uh, they feel that they deserve it, that they're doing all this thankless work and that the only way to properly compensate what they're doing is to do some things that are technically illegal, but they feel they deserve the money. Let's say if they're not going to pay us directly, let we'll pay ourselves indirectly. And that's how some of these people justify it in their minds, and other ones don't justify it at all and just say, well, okay, money, great. Anyway, if you want to sports bet in D.C. legally, you're not going to be able to for a while. I doubt that they're going to make this uh, late 2019 projection that they originally had. We're already almost in late 2019. Two-thirds of 2019 is gone. I don't think early 2020 is happening unless they really get this rectified. And I'm telling you, if they, if they just decide to let it go and let this fake company do the work, then that's proof just massive corruption. But the good thing is the Washington Post is a very large and well-read newspaper. So now that now that this is out on the in the Washington Post, it's, it's hard to dodge that. Because the, the Post is going to keep hammering at this. So once once the Washington Post is on your case for corruption, you're you're in trouble, unless you're not guilty. But but the truth is, usually when the Washington Post does a big investigation uh, in, in types of things like this, they're they're right on. They usually get it correct. The Washington Post they're sometimes biased politically, and I don't like that. But in non political investigations, just general investigations into things that uh, about corruption and fraud and stuff like that, they do a great job from what I've seen. Look at the whole thing with uh, the uh, the company it's escaping me the name now. The uh, Theranos, that was it. Look at what they—they they were the ones who broke the whole Theranos story. Otherwise, Theranos could still be considered a nine billion dollar company that's going to revolutionize blood testing instead of the scam it was. The amazing thing to me about Theranos was the fact that it actually survived for some time after this was exposed, and—and and they were actually still getting some investment, like as if they were still viable. Like, like how were they thinking that could work? Like who would ever invest in them at that point? How, how are they not completely dead on arrival once this all came out? Even if they did somehow deliver what they claimed they were going to deliver, by, by that point, th- their name was so sullied by everything that had happened that it, no one would have trusted them anyway. But Theranos has been shut down and liquidated, so that's that's the end of that. <laughs> now they've now there's going to be the trials about uh, what happened there. With uh, really with uh, Theranos, I don't know why their name escaped me for the moment. I think it's because it's one a.m. and I've been doing the show for uh, four hours. But I always thought that. The head of Theranos, the CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, I always thought that she was just kind of crazy and delusional. 
and that the COO Ramesh Balwani was the real like scammer and criminal. Like she was a criminal too. Also, I'm not excusing what she did, but just for everything I saw, she really seemed like she was just kind of a nutcase. Like I, I think she almost got to the point. She believed her own BS. I think she was just not a stable person to begin with. And she had an idea and then kind of sold everybody on her bullshit. And then she believed her own bullshit. And I think that she was in denial when it started to come out that it was all bullshit. Like, while at the same time, the COO wasn't like that. He was just uh, an executive who knew the whole thing was crap and just was profiting. So he wanted to, he, he, kept the scam going and also he, he did some really nasty things with, with threatening legal action against anyone who tried to blow the whistle. Like th- th- that guy was a real piece of shit. I like knowing the whole story. He was the much worse of the two, in my opinion, even though he wasn't the CEO. Anyway, I'm kind of going on a million tangents here. Now we've lost our co-host. We lost our other co-host before the show even started. I've got to talk to Cal Watts. Cal Watts has been expressing more and more desire to come back. And I have to thank Phil Galfon for that. Like it, was, it was the Phil Galfon talk that got Cal Watts excited because he, he, he was like screaming into the show like as he's listening in the archives going, no, I've got something to say here and I can't say it. Like he was, he, It was so, bothering him so much that he couldn't comment on it because he was listening in the archives at that point that it kind of inspired him to return. And he totally would have returned tonight if I was just like a few minutes faster. And I, and I regret that. I regret that. I should have I should have eaten something tonight that was lighter on my stomach. I didn't get food poisoning. I just I, I had to use the facilities before the show. It's something like I could have held for some time, but not for four hours. All righty. I know this wasn't a super long show, but we didn't have a lot of topics. In fact, uh, had I not discovered the whole Erica Trank situation and the Jenny Lee situation, we would have really been short on topics. Like, I, I would have looked at what the topics were for this week, and I would go, crap, that's all? Like, I was I was really scraping for topics this week, and then those two came up. And I wasn't even like, when when those two, one of them was brought to me on the forum, and the other one I found myself, and... These weren't specifically for the show, but I, I, I thought, oh, okay, good. We, at least we got those two to talk about. And I thought they were both interesting. Well, we covered a number of things that may have updates. So we'll see. I'll let you know what happens with Stephanie, a.k.a. Jenny Lee, the former porn star who now lives under a bridge. Like a troll. Uh, I will give you an update on what happens with Fetty Wap and the misdemeanors he's facing for punching three security guards. I'll tell you if uh, Caesars is going to get a different CEO than planned because of the insider trading subpoenas. I'll tell you if these this Houston poker room, this prime social club, is successful with their lawsuit. And I'll tell you if DC ends up ever having sports betting and if they actually hire a real local firm to do the work or if it's just another shell company. 
All of these questions will be answered as time goes by. Probably not by next week, but as we pass through the remainder of 2019 and 2020. And I... Hope you guys noticed that I have been updating stories. Like you, you'll hear me continue stories and give updates to things that we talked about before. Not all the time, but sometimes. I will admit, I sometimes listen to the call to listen line. I'll hear some story from like five years ago, and then I'll think, "Well, okay, but whatever happened? Like, what was the results of this?" And this is like five years ago now. Then I'll Google it and I'll find out. I go, "Okay, well, now it's kind of too late to bring up." But if I see updates of these things come down the wire, I will let you guys know. We should be on Thursday for the foreseeable future, unless there's reasons I can't make it on Thursday. Though it looks like I will make it on Thursday. One of the reasons we didn't have as many topics this week is we had one fewer day. We had only six days between shows, but it'll be seven because next week is scheduled for Thursday night. And that should be our night for the foreseeable future. But I reserve the right to go on Friday or Wednesday or whenever I feel like doing it. And if you don't like it, you can complain to my boss. We'll see if he does anything about it. All right. Thank you, Trader Risky, for being on tonight. Good night. And shalom.